there's three upstairs and there's about 30 in this room and six or seven in another room. So I well, can this isn't, this isn't whitetail cribs. We don't need to have every, every single one, but just, just show us a couple. Okay. A hunter podcast is brought to you by deer grow. Heck yeah, man. Dude, we put a lot of food in the ground every year, you know, seemingly more and more, and uh, we have a ton of fun with it during the off-season. There's some struggles that come with it too, though, right? Obviously, the back of my truck is evidence, you know, right now. It's Mm -hmm. a couple weeks after uh, I jackknifed, you know, a 4,800-pound material spreader, you know, as I was coming down, and it's just too much weight for my truck there. But, you know, all those struggles aside, you know, Deer Grill really has been a staple for our food plotting process uh, for several years now. Yes, we like to put lime and fertilizer on the plots, you know, if we can, but there are some that it's just we're not able to get to them or it's not feasible for us to get out of state with that stuff and so deer grow is kind of the the quick and easy but still super effective option for us to be able to get the most out of those food plots that we can every year and i mean we're guilty of over analyzing things just like everyone else but that's the best part about deer grow is that it's going to create healthier soils which in turn makes better food plots and the fact is is we can simply spray plot start or plot till when we put the seed in the ground and then when that plant starts to grow we hit it with boost and we know that we walk away when we come back it's going to be a great looking food plot for anybody that's looking to try deer grow if you use the code hunter15 that's h-u-n-t-r-1-5 at checkout for deergrow.com and save 15 percent on any of your deer grow products it's a great way to get started on this and just see what the results are for yourself better food plots bigger deer and we're back hey on our podcast episode 167 Nick's snowed in on this damn mountain, man. It, it has been wicked to him over the last uh, few weeks. It seems like just out of coincidental, like whenever we're going to film, it's like snowstorm, mountain, snowed in. Is what it is. I mean, you know, just got to be flexible to to get these, uh, you know, to, to sync it all up. Like we all got schedules and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you can't, there's nothing you can do about the weather. It's just, it is what it is. It's January. Yeah. yeah. Dead of winter, like yeah. I said on the last one. Yeah, so we filmed, it is still the 19th, you listen to the last one. We doubled up because I am at SHOT Show, or was at SHOT Show, I don't know what day this is dropping. Mm-hmm. So we had to do that. I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's was at SHOT Show. Was at SHOT Show. SHOT Show last week, that's where I was at. SHOT, didn't film. SHOT, 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 SHOT. Um, <laughs> so anyways, you do your piece. Hey, thank you guys for uh, tuning in. It's uh, YouTube. Uh, forgive me. Whether it's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, we, we appreciate you guys being here. Um, Jeremy and I work really hard to, you know, put these things out, uh, you know, once a week. We've been doing this for, uh, I think, over three years now. Which over is, three years. If you know Jeremy and I, it's, it's kind of like herding cats sometimes, and that's that's a pretty impressive Our wives feat. would be impressed with that. <laughs> so we're proud of that. We're, we're uh, appreciative that you guys tune in and leave us comments and write us on the website and all that. We do our best to respond to those as, uh, you know, frequently as we can. So if we haven't got back to you on something, you know, I apologize. But, you know, bear with us. But uh, we do appreciate you being here. So. We do. And we try. And hopefully by this point, you're not like, man, I wrote them on the 19th and they haven't responded yet. We usually are better than that. Yeah. But just depends. Um, We're trying. Only human. It is, yeah, we're just in that kind of fun. I mean, most seasons, we got a, a couple weeks in Ohio. I don't even know what I'm going to do. Like, I mean, I've got a lot of bucks showing up on camera right now with this colder weather and snow coming in. But, man, you're in that just tough spot where it's like, yeah, it's a good four-year-old, but, like, he's pretty much made it through. Like, I'm past that. I'm, I got a lot of four-year-olds I know about right now that mm-hmm. I'm letting fly. Mm-hmm. That bean field's sucking them in, dude. Yeah. Have it's you di- seen Tight Rack, the five-year-old that Jed was hunting? he been back? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's there. J- Jed and I are kind of, like, volleying on it. It's funny how this time of year, that's what it comes down to. It's like sure. there's only one five. Well, he's, he's out. Actually, he's older than that. I think he's six. six yeah. Six or seven. 
yeah, no, he, he looks great. I'd love to get that deer killed. Um, if it weren't for, we have like our little, uh, company Christmas party tomorrow. We're, we're taking all our kids to top golf, top golf. And then, uh, otherwise you'd be there to kill him. Otherwise I'd be there to kill him. So Jed very well might kill him tomorrow night. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm seeing, I have seen four or five different shed bucks, probably nothing older than two, uh, besides that one in Kentucky. Yeah. 90% of mine are still holding. Uh-huh. I've got a few have popped. In fact, just today I had a two-year-old pop off with uh-huh. one, one side, you know. There you go. So they're, yeah, they're thinking about it. Well, I mean, with the amount of snow now we have on the ground, it'll be a while to, to look. Um, unless you, like, oh, who knows? know where one is. Like, I have that one still on camera. That snow could melt next week. I, mean, I think it will. We're supposed to break out of it. In fact, I thought more deer would shed because of this cold weather and, and a little bit more stress on the body here. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be holding, holding pretty tight. So I'm enjoying it. Like just to, cause I have such a great food source. I got that 10 acre standing bean mm-hmm. field that I planted and like, and they use it, you, you know, year round, but we, we planted, try to plant enough so that this time of year right now, you know, when, yep. uh, they had the least amount available, you know, they're, it's just fun to see them on. Like, it's not like the pattern is super tight, like every day, but I, they're doing, they're doing what I want they're them to doing do. What you you want. know, they're kind, and it's cool to still see, you know, some uh, some scrapes like are really getting hit consistently. Still have some dofons coming in. Yep, a uh, little bit of that nosing, you know, mm-hmm. nosing them around and stuff. <laughs> but it's just it's cool to see, you know, you know, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it's maybe three or four four year olds and one five or six year old and and whatever subsequent bucks and stuff coming onto this food source. But for us, that's. You know, we don't get that a lot. We just no, have we cool corn piles everywhere, and there's like a lot of times we don't have the food. The brassica mm-hmm. plots get crushed and stuff. So this this big destination grain food source has been fun to just observe with cameras. You know, this time of year, I've seen more deer pouring into my new Kentucky place here in the last you know week and a half or two weeks into some of the standing corn. I had some really good brassicas and bulbs in there. Um, a few new bucks, mostly two year olds. You know, nothing like substantial still no shooters on a new kentucky place um that one that one that That one was a stud yeah and i just i where's he at i don't know i don't know i need to get back in he was deep into that property and he's never come up to that food source which is at least on camera um doesn't mean that he hadn't but he sure didn't seem like it i've lost the the big nine point that i was i wasn't going to try to kill him this year um but i haven't seen him in a while i talked to the neighbor uh it sounds like one they killed like a half rack four point and uh like a a basic eight but it doesn't sound like anybody really killed anything around there these deer just disappear into that big timber and i was hoping like and i am i'm seeing more deer pouring into there with us having food now yeah i think even in february we'll probably have some but man i'm yeah i'm surprised that one deer did not like he just walks up there and it should be like an oasis of food compared to what's around there um Mm. maybe got shot i don't know be interesting to know, like, what kind of, uh, how far some of those deer are traveling. I bet far. Like, m- maybe that type of a situation is just totally opposite. Like, it's very possible those deer just live their entire lives traveling, mi- you know, miles at a time. Just, just nomadic, yeah. Honestly, just this time of year, just going from, from feeder to feeder, you know. They- one of the, yeah, one of the first years I had that farm, I had a really big mainframe 10 with double split G2s. Probably a four-year-old, but, like, all over 160. And for that Jeez. county, it was a toad. Um, supposedly that deer got hit by a school bus, like four miles from there. And I had had him consistently through the year. Um, Hmm. you know, and he, he did disappear for a while. And then it sounds like after that, so I don't know. I mean, 
I definitely have home body deer. Like I've I, almost all of the bucks I started the season with, minus the one nine point, I have right now. They all made it through. So several three year olds and probably one four year old. Hmm. Um, so it, you know it shows potential for next year, but it is surprising. I'm going to go in with a lot more beans next year to try to pull them in early season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I planted a lot more of what I would say is late season food this year, and oh. it it didn't really pan out. Huh. So That's I'm going to. I had the deer there early. I just you know they kind of. When those acorns really started to fall, they just were out of there. Do you have good, like, you know, January bedding? Like, is there is there yeah. any thermal cover or south southeast-facing slopes? Yep, like, a lot of south-facing slopes, some good cover through there. Um, have you scouted it, like, this time of year, January, February? Last year I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you find a lot of beds, like, where mm-hmm. you'd expect to find them? Yep, decent amount. Found a few sheds. Oh. Um, but, again, there was no food either last year. Right, it was all old pasture. Right. So this year is the first year that it has food, and it. I would assume. I would say that there's definitely more deer groups than had been last year. But it's, you know, kind of go back to the fact that, and I haven't checked it recently. You know, there were only like 130 bucks killed in the entire county so mm-hmm. far this year, and like 20 does. <laughs> yeah, and you're just running, running cell cams on what right now? Food. Just over the grain source, or over, uh, mostly over the oh, the brassica plots. I have one feeder out. Any scrapes? Any corn piles? Anything like <clears> that? <throat> no corn piles. Um, I've got a lot of standing corn that they're probably in. Um, Scra- scrapes. scrapes are all closed no, on my no side. No pinch points or anything. Yeah, a couple pinch points. I've got cameras in. Hmm. You feel like you're covering it pretty effectively? No, no, <laughs> no. I just think that those deer just cover ground. Well, sure. Um, but I, I don't But the think, food sources, though. I mean, if that's where they're coming to, that'd be the spot. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like the eight acres of standing corn that they're really just kind of probably. I mean, there was a lot of corn on them. I haven't, you know, cut it down. I haven't mowed it over. I haven't done anything. Like, it's just standing. So I'm sure they're just walking out into these long strips of, mm-hmm. you know, three, four acres of corn and working through. And I've got a camera on the ends of those on Nebraska and an old alfalfa plot. But it's just periodically deer crossing. Are you going to go hunt it? It's closed. Oh, it's closed now in Kentucky. Yep. Mm. Season closed. Shade's <laughs> taken. Did you hunt that at all this year? <laughs> uh, I, I did with the kids a few times. Yeah. Um, personally, I hunted it once. Did you guys take any deer off that new farm? No. Didn't see. No. And we can't take any does really off of that wow. um, because, it mo- like, during the gun season, you can't shoot a doe. You can only shoot a buck during the gun season. Mm. Um, during the archery season, you can, but frankly, I wasn't seeing enough does to take any off. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like, man, for as much food as I put in, I mean, 10 plus acres, like there was not a lot of deer. Like I wouldn't, as of right now, I would not shoot a doe off of that property. Hmm. I got to think right now, the bucks are probably feeling like, uh, boys are back in town right now. We, we took out like 16 or 17 does. Oh, I bet they've got a lot of space. And so point. now, yeah. Yeah, they're probably like, man, there's always this, you know, yeah, freaking hard up doe, you know, that's running us out of here, no, or causing, no causing a ruckus or whatever. Yeah, hey, it's pretty nice to eat in silence. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> the critical part, right? I mean, we need, like, I had four or five bucks on camera last night, two-year-olds, a couple three-year-olds, which is good to see. Like, those deer will be good deer next year out <laughs> there. silence. Yeah, and they're just, you know, they're just kind of doing their thing, eating brassicas. I can see the corn in the background. I can see them in the corn, in the cornfield, and... Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's just, you know, there's your tale of two cities, right? And our guest today will probably have a, a third take on all this, but you know, you're smacking 16 does and probably not even making a dent, you know, in it. 
I, I don't know if I chewed a doe off of my place because I don't see enough deer. You know, I think I saw the most deer I saw on a sit on that property last year was like four. It was like a doe, two fawns, and probably a, a one-year-old doe with her. Um, that was it. Yeah, you're you're in the building deer herd, you know, phase. Yeah, which is exciting. Uh, at the same part, like, you know, head scratching to a point where it's like, man, we, doe season and gun have been, let me put it this way. I think I sent you the numbers, like, it's been seven or eight years since they've killed more than, or checked in more than 20 does or 25 does mm-hmm. for a whole county. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, man, it's you would think that the population would be busting at the seams. There's been a few EHD bouts that I think have definitely played a big effect on that. Oh, wow. Um, but even still, it's like, man, 25 does a year? Like, there's 200-acre properties that take 20, <laughs> 25 does a year. Yeah. And that's the whole county. And then even on the buck side, killing 130 to 160 bucks a year, like, that's not a lot of deer. And, I mean, if you look at the amount of, like, livable deer space, it's the whole county. How many licenses are sold every year? Do you know, know on a county basis? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I bet I can find it. Yeah. I mean, it's we're in zone four, which is considered the lowest density deer zone in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, we are surrounded by all zone three counties. Like, we're an isolated island. I think part of it was because we got hit hard with EHD. Um, but the interesting part there is that because they took the, the doe season basically out of modern gun, is most of the hunters left the county. They went to the surrounding <laughs> counties because they couldn't kill a doe. Mm. Uh, so the, the number of hunters has decreased, which has helped our age class for sure. Um, but, man, I, I guess it's just that there's, there's so much space. Like, I mean, just giant hundreds of thousands of acres of woods that they can just disappear into the national forest yeah. or private land or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, very, very weird. And, and, you know, it's really, this is my first year of like grabbing my hands around it and I don't have a good grip on it. I don't know. Beans next year. Maybe it's like, holy cow, I got deer all over the place. I don't know. I mean, they, they need food just period this time of year. You know, you'd think if, if there's, you'd think so, if there's a buck to be had, you know, he, there's a lot of food on that place. And yeah, I have not. And maybe, like I said, maybe that deer got shot, but that was like towards the end of gun season that I had him on camera. Yeah. Um, funny how things like ebb and flow from year to year i mean dude on our place there's been granted we're in ag country so mm-hmm. we're you know uh just naturally we have a high deer density out of there so sure. it's, we're, we're more in the whatever you call it a calling phase yeah. trying to reduce our doe numbers a bit and uh, at the same time supplement resources food and food mm-hmm. and cover especially but uh there have been seasons i mean as early as i, I can't remember exactly but last year or the year before where i would have put a camera out this time of year on something i know i'm going to get a picture on like a corn pile put yeah. a big corn pile out i'll throw a camera on it and like dude i i may have been hard pressed to to see a three-year-old like mm-hmm. it just they just weren't there i yeah. don't for what you know we just didn't whether it was the consistency of the food source i was supplying or they just literally were not there like that you know within the vicinity they'd, they'd been killed or whatever to now this year to have whatever we have there four yeah, or five of those dudes i'm like we're sitting sitting pretty yeah it'd be curious i'll be interested to see you know how that manifests itself next year Mm -hmm. you know if those deer stick around or or what yeah i mean that's the thing that uh, you know hard to say obviously we know deer move a lot but i feel like some of these bucks especially as you talk about four or five six year old bucks like they're looking for reliability Mm -hmm. you know in a lot of cases and so you know that buck that i had seen who isn't showed up maybe he found something else that was reliable and he's hanging tight to it and there's no need for him to come over there possible um 
or you know when things continue to grind out here because we've had a pretty mild season uh in the wintertime you know if all of a sudden we get back into cold weather into february maybe eventually he's like man i gotta go find some food and then boom here's a good analogy I'll, I'll paint we never talked about this we talk about you know, mature bucks settling into a tight core range. Mm-hmm. It's like, we probably have scratched our heads a lot, like looking at everything we have to offer being like, why aren't they, why aren't they here? Like, why aren't they using it? You know, an old mature buck is probably just like, you know, he's an old guy who's, it's, he's had that recliner for a long time. It's worked for a, forever. You could come and sit a brand new one right next to him and it's top of the line and run yep. through the features. And he's and, like, yeah, I want it. He's like, this one's pretty good. This I, I kind of like where I'm at it's right broken, here. Again, it's all reliable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big piece of it, you know? And so, yeah, it, it's interesting when you, you kind of get to that level, especially at this time of year. But um, our guest is kind of, I would say, an outlier to even this discussion, right? So we've got Troy Bottinger on today. Uh, Troy is in Idaho, mm-hmm. right? So when you think about whitetails, I don't think most people are thinking about Idaho. Yep. Or um, states in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you done, run down through the list trying to name all 50, Idaho's going to be one of the last you uh, remember. 49, 49, Idaho, 50. <laughs> um, so, you know, but I think um, in that same breath, I mean, first of all, the guys killed some megas. Um, his hunting style has to be very different to that type of uh, topography. Um, I know that they've just watching some of his videos, they've got some interesting kind of season break updates, you know, it's a Western based state. Um, so a lot of things different than whether you're in the Midwest, the Northeast, the Southeast, doesn't matter. Like we, we are predominantly whitetail hunting States when you get to, you know, West or East of the Mississippi, when you get over to his part of the country, like I would assume that it's, it's a much different game and a much different structure even seasonally than, than what we're seeing, uh, especially as you get into the mountains of Idaho. Um, so uh, intriguing to kind of dive into, to Troy's vantage point. Help me out here real quick. Where's Idaho? Uh, so that would be, uh, just (coughs) east of Washington and Oregon. Wow. And California. West of Montana. West of Montana. Wow. So the Western edge of Montana is what forms that peak of Idaho that touches Canada. Crazy. And I don't, well, watch Troy. I don't know exactly where his location yeah. is in this, but uh, rugged country, you yeah. know, we're oh, talking yeah. wilderness, the West. Mountain, yeah, mountain lions, you yeah. know, all of so, it. So super stoked to kind of dive into Troy's brain here and, and hear a much different approach to what we love so much in, in whitetail deer and whitetail hunting. Let's do it. All right, Troy, appreciate you coming on today, man. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. No, it's made it happen. This, yeah, we we made it happen uh, for good reason, right? What was it? Was it last week or two weeks ago, Troy? That you were actually in Ohio? Yeah, yeah, about ten days ago. Uh, my son and I came out and hunted with some buddies out, uh, close to Columbus. Mm. And Jared and I were talking the whole time, trying to. We were going to try to run down and see you guys in person. But I guess I got a little too picky and decided I wanted to kill a giant. So I had to hang in there and try to kill him. And <laughs> my son killed a really nice buck, but I got I got in. I found a buck that really tripped my trigger. So I was like, it's either him or nothing. Yep. All in. And I man. ran out of time with you guys. So sorry. No, no, right. you're good. I expect nothing less. I, yeah. You know, the, the back and forth beforehand is like, you know, some some people might look at it as like a you know a hurdle or whatever, but it's it's honestly a great chance for us to get to know each other, but beforehand and stuff. And the reason we do this podcast to begin with is to build relationships and stuff like that. So the fact that we had the chance to try, you know, to get it done beforehand was uh, was great. So so I'm thankful for it. Well, I really like that you understood, you know, 
you do this as long as I've done it. I think you guys, Jared, especially you, I know you were talking to me all the time. I think you could understand that my number one priority was to try to get the goal that I had set accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, my feelings weren't hurt because I didn't ever try to act like, I, you know, or think that I was the first <laughs> priority. I was like, I'll just, I'll be here in case yeah. it happens. So yeah, it's fine with me. I, I, we were, we were really hoping we could pull, pull off a double and get out and see you guys in person. But this is the next best thing. Yeah. Well, listen, man. I mean that that Columbus area is has just <laughs> continued to become notorious for producing some absolute freak giants. Yeah. Uh, I got you know I've got some good friends through the addictions team that had Ty and I out, and I could see real quick after. Well, obviously, I I know their history and what those guys kill. But just getting on the ground and getting to break it down myself and getting to dive in and figure it out for myself is what I really enjoyed. I really didn't want to just have a buck set up for me. I wanted to dive into something that I had to figure out because I wanted to learn because I know I'm going to go back. Mm -hmm. And I probably had one of the best times I've had in my life hunting and I got to do it with my son. And of course he killed a really nice buck and, I learned a ton and I was able to, you know, uncover a couple big dudes. I just feel like I was a hair late in the game of uncovering them. Um, like I told my boy, if we didn't have to get him back, he's a college football player at Montana state and he had to get back for workouts. Um, mm-hmm. I would have stayed and changed my flight and stayed. And I think I was really getting in the game those last couple of days. And I, I really believe, I don't think I'm pretty sure I would have made one more move and that deer probably would have been in trouble. Yep. I just ran out of time. Boy, are they, are they following up on that at all? Or are the guys that you had permission or that hunt out there, are they going to continue running cameras on that deer and stuff? Yeah, actually the guy that let me hunt have access <laughs> to the property where that deer was knew the deer was around and I had to figure him out and find him. And he didn't surface till five or six days in. Wow. And we, we had eight days to hunt total and then two days to travel. Um, and of course, again, Ty killed on the third day. So Ty, my son, uh, who's a hell of a whitetail hunter, he, he helped me the whole time. And we just teamed up on this deer. And then we unearthed another buck that was just an absolute tank. So I had two to pick from after, by like day six, guys, five and a half, day six. We did a exorbitant amount of work. Uh, we lived in those woods. Uh, we actually left a five-year-old alone that another buddy of mine shot after we left that oh, wow. we found. He just wasn't what I was looking for. The five-year-old that we left alone that my buddy shot after we left, Ty would have killed him too, but Ty killed a different buck that was very comparable earlier. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you mentioned kind of the learning process, especially when you uncover those deer. And it's hard for people to understand that, um, you know, maybe either hunt the same place all the time and kind of chase the same deer. But and when you go in and, and you get on a, a deer and you know you're getting close, one of the worst things or worst feelings is knowing that it's likely going to end before you put all the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, and it was it was close, guys. I literally had him at 70, 65 yards in the broad daylight. Mm. And there's some people out there that would have took that shot, but you know, we can get into that. I that's just not who I am. I that deer 
I just felt like I got on you a little late, buddy. You're in trouble if I stay another day or two, but I'm not going to be able to stay a day. So, so more power to you. Good. You know, a lot of respect to that old buck. He was being real careful. And according to my friend that I was hunting the property of, that property that I was on was one of the most pressured properties that he knows of, except for in the late season, most guys are done. Yeah. They shut so it down. I was in hunting a five or six year old buck that knows what pressure is big time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause that was the other thing, obviously 10 days ago, you've gone through the entire bow season, first bow season, you've gone through the gun season, you've gone through the muzzleloader season. I mean, these deer have been put through the ringer at that point. Um, especially these old bucks who have done it multiple seasons as well. Yeah. And that's what excited me. That's what gets me excited is, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I really like hunting those five plus year old whitetails, no matter where I hunt. I hunt Eastern Washington, Northern Idaho, Western Montana. Doesn't matter where I go. I've hunted Iowa. I've hunted Oklahoma. I've hunted North Dakota. I've hunted, you know, in a lot of places, guys, Ohio. And no matter where I go, whitetails are still whitetails, believe it or not. Um, they, they do behave differently based on pressures, uh, especially at younger ages in some states than others. And, and based on the playing field they're growing up in. But once you get up into that five, six-year-old deer, if they've been hunted hard, I really, really don't think there's a huge difference in their behavior unless they've just been totally left alone their whole life on a highly manicured, unpressured giant property. That Then it's a little different. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where, you know, Jared and I always talk about it. I mean, sure, you know, with age often comes antler size. I mean, our goal every year is to to be in the game on mature bucks, um, you know, whether that's our home state or a state that we travel to. And it's not because like, you know, we don't have a respect for a three-year-old or whatever. It's just the fact that the challenge of hunting with a mature deer is what we seek out. In fact, we, we talk about it all the time. And again, it's so hard to put a finger on, but I'd rather chase and struggle and fail against a mature buck than tag out on a three-year-old every year. Like that's just my mentality is is I want to hunt and and really, you know, struggle for that success and know at the end of the day, like, as a mature deer, I mean, that's that's as good as it gets. It's it's rare, too, because it's like, man, there's just, there's not a whole lot of five-plus-year-old deer out there, you know, bucks anyways. Uh, you know, especially depending on where you live, you know, us being from the East Coast, like we're, you know, we're in Pennsylvania as we're talking to you here, Troy. So any, to, to get into good deer hunting, you got to either drive to Northern Pennsylvania or West to Ohio, you know, and then, you know, on from there. And it's like, we probably find ourselves in the situation more where it's like, we are longing for that chase of like a, tr a truly mature animal. Like it, there's no... There's no disputing that a five plus year old buck has his own personality, his own, like they're, they're just a different animal. And if you've only ever hunted like two and three, and maybe even some cases, you know, four year old deer, if you've been fortunate enough to do that, it's like, it's hard to like separate the two sometimes when all you have to look at is three and four year olds. It's like, you find yourself being like, you know, I don't know, think like acting like they're that five year old buck or trying to make the chases as fun as it can be. But just the reality is they're just not, they're just not that five or six year old buck. Yeah, you, you only know what you know. So if you don't put yourself in situations to give you that experience, then you really don't understand, you know, the difference between that age class. Yeah. Um, 
that's one thing the hunting the public I, i've hunted the public mountain country of the three states that i just talked to you guys about i live way up in the panhandle um i own a couple different places one of them's right by canada the other one's 90 miles from canada just to give you an idea um but all that to say at, at a young age when I, I know you guys are obviously a lot younger than i am but at a real young age uh i i just decided that i was like in my late teens and I, I saw just the it, the big difference in the bucks on the ranch that I grew up on that were two and three versus the old deer that I might see once a season on our property when I was a kid. And I, I just thought way back then, even in high school, I was like, I really want to figure out how to kill those big ones. And then this, you know, this back in the 80s, guys. Um, and then I decided, and I'm going to do it with a bow and arrow, which out here in the West was unheard of for whitetails back in the eighties. Sure. Nobody did it. Extremely difficult. <clears throat> there was zero education on hunting public mountain land, whitetails with a bow and arrow. So long story short, I, I had to figure it out on my own. I had to, I'd figured out big time on my own. And then when I was in high school, unfortunately my dad got killed logging and I was on my own. Mm. So wow. my, my love and passion for whitetails started way back when I was young. Uh, killed one every year all through my teens on my own. My dad was an elk hunter and a mule deer hunter. Then he passed away tragically when I was young. So for me, it's just been a life uh, endeavor, passion. Just uh, It's just been my solace in life when I needed to find happiness. So for me, diving into it out here, guys, really has taught me about whitetails and everywhere I go, I still see whitetails do whitetail things, right? especially the old ones. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were you kind of a black sheep in that sense? What is the <laughs> dynamic out in Idaho as far as muleys, elks, whitetail? Like I know the mule, it's funny when you are in country where there's whitetails and muleys, it's like guys are either all in on one and they could care less about the other or, or vice versa. Right. And, and to be fair to your listeners, it's changed. Okay. But back in the day, yeah, I was a black sheep. I was laughed at uh, when I started knocking down big. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, I killed the number two buck in the state of Idaho with a bow. Just stuff like that. Rumors start. People start talking. What nobody understood is the effort and the amount of time I was putting into it year round to figure it out. I had to teach myself. Uh, my father, again, was a mule deer hunter. So, yeah, I was definitely, like, pioneering. As I look back, I was figuring stuff out from the deer. I was allowing the whitetails to teach me. And I didn't have any outside, like, noise coming in to tell me how to do it. Mm -hmm. I just did it on my own. And I would read articles and stuff from the Midwest. And there were some nuggets that I could take on deer biology that were helpful. But but the truth is, I just had to be out there and I had to let the deer teach me what was up and how how they were using their habitat, how they were using that huge country, how the weather patterns and the snow levels. I heard you guys talking about snow today. Uh, I've got 18 inches of snow at my house right now and I'm at a low elevation. The bucks that I hunt right now probably have six feet of snow where I would have hunted them two months Jeez. ago. So now they're migrated five to 10 miles. Wow. Oh. So Troy, when at that kind of young age, obviously you're you're blazing this trail, 
I mean, the the big thing, and we talk about all the time, is like one of the first starting points for killing a mature buck is knowing that he's there, right? Not spinning the wheels. I mean, when you're blazing into this thing, you know, as a young kid, like what are, what are you looking for as you get into this, some of these mountain type areas, right? It's not like you're just being able to be, observe a giant alfalfa field and say, <laughs> oh, yep, there he is. He comes walking in. C- can you describe it for us too? What is the topography like? Is it all wooded? Is it is there some open country? But, what is it? Let me. De- I'll describe the topography, guys, and then I'd really like to answer that question because that's a great question. Uh, so imagine, if you will, river valleys that run down to about a thousand feet elevation. And then imagine, if you will, guys, mountains that are completely covered in timber, except for maybe at seven and 8,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And imagine, if you will, guys, national forests that are millions of acres, not, not hundreds of thousands of acres. Some of my favorite places that I hunt are multiple millions of acre chunks. Wow. And then imagine, if you will, the most rugged, brushy, nastiest every year somebody dies in this country out here gets lost every year whether they're a hiker a snowmobiler a you know a shed hunter people die out here every year i'm not exaggerating we lose people every year to this country because it's so unforgiving and then and then think about like the mountain man era of the united states this is where those men were trapping yeah this is this is the country that the Pacific Northwest guys, the inland. I'm on the inland right. Pacific Northwest. I'm in the intermountains of the Rocky Mountains. So I'm in the Rockies. Imagine all of that and then timber that goes for hundreds of miles with zero place to glass a whitetail. Unless it's a logging clear cut. Right. That's it. Right. So tie all that together. No fences. If a whitetail buck, and I have years and years of experience and data on this, if he wants to move five miles in half a day, he will. If he wants to move 10 miles during the rut in a day, it's no big deal. And this is why the deer densities are really low. Bucks have to travel to get to doe family pockets where the doe family groups live. And these whitetails out here, I don't know if you guys have ever looked at any of the pictures of the bucks I kill. Mm-hmm. They're muscled up. They're built like brick shit houses, yeah. but they don't carry any fat, hardly at all. Oh, wow. But they're big deer. Guys, I live real close to Canada, so I get the big bodies. They just don't pack the big corn bellies. They're, they're not fat because of the terrain. What, what kind of weights? So they're like a, what kind of weights, Joey? Yep, like field dressed. Field dressed, what are some of these bucks weighing? Like if you're killing in October. Yeah, those... The big, like that deer I killed this, okay, we'll go to October. A couple October bucks that I've killed out here away when they're five or six or seven or eight years old, and there's not many of those. Uh, we can get into actually trying to find one is the hard part. Yep. Yep. They'll weigh the big deer that get that have the long, tall, the long skeletons, the height, just like a big man that's 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". They'll weigh just like a human, 250 to 275. Wow. field dress the, the the deer that have the shorter stockier builds kind of like guys like me they're 510 they'll weigh like they should 210 220 yeah but they're all but they're all really muscled up mm. and october weights depends on Mast. the body type of the white tail white tails are just like humans they have body types yeah and acorns um, i assume you guys have mass trees out there right 
That's a dumb no, question. Maybe not. No, no mass trees at all, guys. It's all conifers, so there's wow. no mass at all. There's, but oh, wow. what we do have is incredible underbrush yeah. and vegetation because we're in the Pacific Northwest. Browse and right. Forbes, yeah. Yes, and then one last thing, guys. Like the buck I killed this year in December after rutting all season, and our rut does run a little later, about two weeks later than like Ohio. He was still 250 on the hoof real close. Jeez. It's toad. It's yeah, toad. and that's in December. So the real big ones will hit 275. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. 280. I mean, yeah. and, and again, well, it goes back to the the muscle and skeleton size that you talk about, especially when it's just browse and forbs. They're not out there packing on grain, or they're not packing on acorns and things like that. That's going to build that fat that fat layer up. Yep. And and to be fair again to the listeners, I hunt two different types of mountain bucks. I do hunt bucks that get into the grain. There are a lot of places out here in the West that are mountains. The valley bottoms are all agriculture. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. But when we talk about those backcountry, what people would consider like a backcountry elk hunt, where where elk, where elk and whitetails live in the same place yep. that never see agriculture, those deer in this country, our deer out here, still have incredible forage that's native. And I've talked to the Corps of Engineer guys about it, and they've. They've told me of plants that are wild in these mountains that have like 22 to 25% protein, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. So, so guys, even in the backcountry, we still get the body size. And then you have to add in the northern latitude effect. Sure. I mean, we're right by Canada, guys. So a lot of my bucks look like they're Canadian. When you, when you say the northern latitude effect, what's that? Bigger bodies. Oh, okay. Yeah. The colder, the real cold gotcha. climates, guys, produce bigger bodies through genetic evolution yeah. that can survive the two and three and four feet of snow. Mm. Last week we had five days at minus 15 degrees. The Montana deer had minus 30, 40 and 50. So what ends up happening is natural selection only allows the best DNA to survive out here. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, let's remind him of what was the question you asked. I kind of sidetracked. No, it no, you're good. The... No, I, we needed that context. So my, my question was kind of around, obviously, now knowing that terrain and that layout, you know, Troy back as a teenager blazing into this thing saying, okay, cool, I want to kill these big bucks. For us, it's always like, yeah. well, you got to know they exist. Yeah. Like, w right. you, what, what do you, you walk into this new type of territory looking for these big, mature bucks. Like, what are you even looking for? What are you, what are you finding that's saying, man, this, this is even a possible goal? Well, you can look behind me. Um, when you're a kid, you don't have any money for optics and you can't glass them anyway. I was a shed antler hunter as a kid. I used to find sheds even when I was 10 and 11. It was It's a big thing out west. Yep. And I used to buy my school clothes with it. I used to pitch in. I mean, my parents were great, but they told me, hey, if you want all that fancy shit, then you can go <laughs> earn a little money. Well, it's funny how this happened, guys. When I was... 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, living out in the middle of the mountains on a 50-acre ranch with whitetails in our back fields and up on our mountains behind us, I just started hiking because I was so intrigued with whitetails. And I mean, I was young. I started picking up shed antlers before it was popular out here. And I could make three to $500 a spring on sheds, wow. which back in the 80s, guys, was a lot of money. That was significant, kids. yeah. Wow. So, so guys, here's what happened. Your shed hunting 
you're basically scouting and you don't even realize it. Yep. Then I start coming across these big scrapes that I see deer using in the spring, tracks in the scrapes. They're not urinating in them or anything like that. But that taught me all about scrapes year-round, too, back when in the 80s, because I noticed my biggest buck tracks would be under those licking branches, even in the spring, when I was picking up their antlers. Wow. So, so what happened, guys, is you start finding, let's say you find 25 sheds, one of them's a tank. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, there's a tank living here. Yeah. I'm going to come back and hunt this area and see if I can see. Now, when I was in my teens, obviously I didn't know shit, but I was really paying attention and processing everything and just trying to teach myself, well, if, if I'm finding his sheds here and they're on this south face and he's keeping himself in the sun, where would he probably hide out or live to stay away from danger come hunt season? And, and I started putting those pieces of the puzzle together, guys, even in my late teens. And I, like I said, I killed a buck every year of my life by myself. I uh, lost my dad when I was 17. So after that, it was really on my own. And I really keyed in on scrapes and big shed antlers to help me find the caliber of buck I was hoping to get to kill, was hoping at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't good enough to kill them yet. But I was learning where they lived. Yeah, that's huge. I know, um, and it's kind of weird because obviously they exist everywhere. And it probably wasn't until, I don't know, I was probably in my 20s. And, you know, I'd been pretty feral as a child, right? I was in the woods and just discovering things and being in it. But I remember, like, the first, pretty clearly, the first, like, community scrape I came across. And I was like, huh. Like there's a lot of deer traffic in this thing for being March or how, April. How old do you think you were? I was in I was in my twenties probably. In your twenties. Before I put that, you know, together. Yeah. I knew scrapes, right? Uh, did you? That's what I'm getting well, at. Well, I hunted I hunted. I didn't. In you know, October, when I started hunting, November. I, like, I wouldn't yeah. have known what I was looking at, I don't think. I'd seen scrapes. I'd fall i you know, during turkey season running and gunning in the spring and stuff. Like you would find old scrapes, but it wasn't until like I found one and I'm like, Man, it like it almost I probably asked my dad, I was like why is it still active in like March, you know? And it was, and probably even took longer than that to put all it together. It was like, you know, they're still going to communicate at these things year year round. Yep. Yeah. My dad, before my, before, before my dad passed, my dad was a, my dad was a logger, a very smart guy. He actually went to Boise state university to get his biology degree and become a teacher. But my dad also liked making money and he was an entrepreneur. So Back in the 80s, guys, the, the logging industry in the northern in northern Idaho was unbelievable. Yeah. So my dad could have been a teacher and made 15000 a year or been a logger and make a hundred. So so, you know, my dad obviously gravitated towards something else that he loved and grew up doing. He grew up on a ranch. I grew up on a ranch. We always had cattle. We were always around animals. But what I'm trying to get at is my dad really had a scientific biology type brain. Mm-hmm. And I think I got a lot of that from my father because I was always so mesmerized by science and by how animals behaved. Yep. Yep. So I started just diving into everything I could find on deer biology as a teenager. As a matter of fact, in my high school biology class or zoology class, I put together a complete whitetail buck, every bone. Um, So I was nuts over whitetails, guys. I was a, I was a, like kind of probably looked at from some of my friends, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why do you love these deer so much? So it just snowballed. Mm-hmm. And when I went to college, I purposely studied 
degrees that would help me be a better whitetail hunter. And then I kind of took from my mother and father both. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a logger. And I kind of have done both of those my whole life. Interesting, man. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I, I, I love the fact that when you talk about, you know, you can go to all these different places and, you know, you still end up running into the whitetail, right? The whitetail is the whitetail. It's the adaptation yeah. to where they're at, the environment to where they're at that makes them unique in each of those settings. You nailed it. Uh, what I love about hunting eastern Washington, northern Idaho, Canada, Western Montana, Ohio, Oklahoma, doesn't matter. I love getting to learn how they adapt to their environment and to their pressures. Yeah. To me, that's that's how you unravel the mystery on an old deer. Yeah. You got to figure him out first. And, you know, the people that I know in this world that are great at whatever they do, they are excellent at figuring stuff out on their own. And, and they care about figuring things out. And they never allow negative or tough obstacles to derail them. They just keep working mm -hmm. and they learn and mm -hmm. they move on. So, you know, today I look back on all this and it's been like a blur for me guys, because I put so many hours of my life into it to where now I'm kind of at the point where I can sit back a little bit. I've raised my boys. They're both out of the house and I can kind of just take a deep breath and look around and go, wow, what a, what a, what a last 40 years, you know, I'm 54. And the mountains have kept me young and definitely have taught me. I get my ass whooped a lot, guys, in those mountains by those big deer. They just, it's, there's so many obstacles. We haven't even talked about predators, but I love it because I've learned so much because of it. Yeah. Well, what I was going to ask, we talk, uh, you, you mentioned like the millions of, of acreage there that these deer can just cover. A majority of which is, I assume is public, correct? Yeah, when I refer to multiple million acre public lands, guys, it's all federal. Yeah. Federal. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, would would it be far-fetched to say because of that, like these deer are fairly unpressured or are there just different kinds of pressures on them? They're extremely pressured. Let me explain. Two-month long rifle season. Everybody in the West is an elk hunter. Mm -hmm. Everybody packs a rifle. Everybody shoots the, any deer they see while they're elk hunting. That's just the way it works. Oh, so it's overlapping seasons, Troy? Yeah, and then, guys, where the real pressure comes from, if I brought in a pack of wolves, a few grizzlies, 10 mountain lions to your herd of deer, what would happen to those deer in, <laughs> within a month? Yeah, destroyed. <laughs> That's where my deer, I always give the credit, the predators are... 10 times the hunters we are sure. and they do it three guys, 24 hours, 24 365 days yeah. a year, nonstop. The whitetails that I kill have made it six, seven, eight years of avoiding all of that pressure. Mm -hmm. And I've always said human pressure is second to the predators out here. Wow. Hmm. Do you think that, um, obviously, you know, knowing your area, but a big conversation and Jared and I are very unfamiliar with it is, is around the predators. Like we've heard more out of Wisconsin and Northern in the UP of Michigan and stuff. And, you know, it sure seems from the outside looking in that these predators, especially something like a wolf has a massive impact on that local deer herd. They do. And the mountain lions, even more so mountain lions are the most unbelievable killing machine on the planet wow uh i've lived here 
my I've lived here in Montana for 54 years of my life in the wild with my own eyes, probably spend as much time scouting, hunting, uh, prepping in the woods as anybody out here because I'm a bow hunter only, which I have to do the work to get on them. I think I've seen in my lifetime with my own eyes in the daylight, not counting nighttime, I've probably seen a half a dozen in my life in the daylight. Holy cow. Not me, and, so, and you know they're there. They're so stealthy, guys. Yeah, they're there. <laughs> I mean, how how big of a concern is that for for you? I mean, not uh, obviously for, obviously for the deer. You know, it's affecting how they move, and it's a consideration. But like while you're out hunting, I mean, are you taking precautions for you know for predators? Yeah, nobody ever talks to me about this, but I want to come home to my wife and my kids when my boys hunt with me. We got to get them home safe. Yeah, you, you got to have your shit wired tight out here and you got to have your head on a swivel and you got to be paying attention to the predators in your area because lions are notorious out here for getting on humans and so are grizzlies. Grizzlies oh, yeah. are scary because they're protected. They have no fear of a human. And so you have grizzlies overlapping um, these same places that you're hunting? The best deer I'm hunting in Idaho right now is in the middle of grizzly country. Oh, wow. That's like almost impossible. When you, say, to, the, like, when you say the middle of, like, what's the likelihood that you're going to see a grizzly? Like every time you go out and oh, drive. I've your... seen them. Yeah. I've seen them, guys. I rode around the corner on my e-bike one day and had one standing 15 feet from me in the middle of the road. And he stood up on his hind legs at me. Oh. And I was, <sighs> yes, Jared, to answer Do you your have question, your bear spray I always ready? <laughs> pack. I always pack. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I've, I've stared down a mountain lion in the face with my bow to shoot it in the face and it turned and left. Oh, yeah. Um, Guys, I was skinning. I was skinning a buck that I believe that was on the Whitetail Addictions buck that I was skinning that night. A show that we did. I called him Six Pack. Um, nobody sees this part on the film, but I was skinning him in the dark and doing the gutless method because in my country you pack out the meat only and the cape in the head. Yeah. Because it's just because I'm down in a drainage. It's way too much. Yeah. So I'm skinning this buck out, guys. God is my witness. I had seven or eight wolves come right in on top of me and they would not leave me alone until I unloaded my 10 millimeter in the air above them. Holy cow. So it's real and it's in the dark uh, a lot. It doesn't happen all the time. I'm not romanticizing this or over exaggerating, but every season I usually have at least one encounter with a, with an apex predator, at least one. Wow. That's well, and I mean to your point, the fact that these deer are surviving and thriving, and I mean, you know, we talk about a mature buck being like these deer have their wits about them. They are smart animals out there, though. I can't even imagine. It's a whole different level. Is I mean, are they a primary food source? I mean, I'm sure they are a food source, but like for a mountain lion, is that are deer the main thing they're hunting? Mountain lion's primary food source from what I've seen in my lifetime is a whitetail because they're just the right size to kill and get on and kill and and do it easily. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I have multiple videos of some of my best bucks coming out of, say, a winter, and I'll get them in the spring, and they're just lacerated everywhere by a mountain lion. Whoa. I have, yeah, like scars, guys, all over their back and chest. Oh. Um, ears bitten off. Yeah. Wolves, wolves are really hard on deer, too, when they run out of moose or elk. Yeah, they'll start running that pack on them. 
Yeah, but the lions are, they wreak havoc. They wreak havoc on our whitetail population and our mule deer. The lions, I've heard all the different biologists say, the lowest number I've ever heard is at least 50 deer a year. Jeez. They'll kill. Whoa. I'm a, a mature lion. Yep. What? And do you guys have lion seasons out there? Or many big lion, oh, yeah. lion hunters? Yep. Oh, yeah. If you guys ever want to come lion hunt, you just come stay with me. You're the guy, huh? Do you run? Do they run dogs for them? Idaho allows dogs, guys. Washington does not. Washington is full of lions because they're not afraid of humans. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Montana runs dogs. <laughs> Idaho and run Montana us. run dogs. And guys, if you ever, I heard Jared say earlier, doesn't know where Idaho is. If you ever look at our map, <laughs> I do now. I'm tucked, <laughs> guys. I'm tucked up in the Panhandle, and I can drive 45 minutes each direction, and I'm in the other two states. Wow. So it's cool. Oh, sweet. yeah. That's an awesome spot to be. Yeah. And Canada. Yeah. It's just the, north of you. And then I got, I got Canada right above me, guys. BC well, and Alberta. I was going to say that BC and Alberta right there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, dude, what does a, what does a, like, a, a day in a life is probably the wrong way to ask it. But in terms of like, you're going on a hunt, it's like one of the opening, you know, I assume in winter season open out there. August 30th. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Well, my question would have been misdirected then. So, like, August 30th, you've got something lined up for the opener or getting into September. What does that, what do those hunts look like? I mean, is it a commitment to go up into the mountains? Is it like a full day deal or you kind of get what I'm asking? It's, yeah, Jared, it's a, it's a year round prep. I've killed three velvet bucks, August 30th. Mm -hmm. um, but all the homework I did the previous 200 days is why I killed them or the previous several years. I, I play the long game on these bucks because I will not shoot a buck that isn't at least five years old that I believe is five. Mm -hmm. And because I, because scrape hunting is such a huge part of my game, my bucks move into an area and settle in at two and a half. Mm. And then what, us what usually happens, guys, is I get to watch maybe 10 or 15% of my bucks that start on my scrapes at two and a half get to the age of five or six. Yeah. So, so for me, if they can get through the long game and if they can survive the winners and the predators, when they get to that five and six, seven year old age, and if they happen to be my top target and I've, I haven't killed a non-target buck out here since 97. Mm. Um, it's always a target. Um, if they get to that age, guys, I have a pretty darn good understanding of who they are and what they yeah, are and what they're doing mm -hmm. and what they're doing. Cause I play the long game. Hmm. Yeah. Are, are, uh, are all of those States out there a one buck limit? Yeah. Idaho is not, but it's different. You pay a non-resident fee that's limited on quota to get a second buck tag. Hmm. Interesting. What does that so, mean? Limited on quota to so get a second buck tag. I can buy, basically that means, guys, I can buy a leftover non-resident tag if the non-residents don't buy them all. Okay. How, uh, Idaho, how likely Montana, has that been, Montana, Washington, Troy? or one. What's that? Sorry. How, how likely has that been in, in recent development with expansion of non-residents and stuff? Are there still leftover tags there? There's rarely ever a leftover elk tag. Every now and then I'll be able to squeak out a deer tag, and I usually buy it no matter what. Um because I figure I saved a deer that was a year and a half old that was going to get whacked. Yeah. Yes. That's a good plan on that side. Huh. Man, it's, it's, you so, know, it's, wor it's yeah. worth it to me. It's worth it to me. Sure. Yeah. Huh. What, uh, what is the non-resident? 
I mean, like, and no offense, obviously, it's kind of funny. It's like, have you ever heard anybody say, I want to go to Idaho to hunt yeah. whitetails? It's like, no. Elk. What does the non resident crew look like? I mean, I assume there are non resident tags. Are there lots of guys coming out? Do you see people coming out of the woodwork or? Yeah. Yeah. Because we live next, I mean, up here where I'm at, Spokane, Washington's almost a million people in that valley. Yeah. And it's right on the border. So everybody from Washington jumps over here because. I, Northern Idaho is like the redheaded stepchild of all management. Mm-hmm. Um, it is 100% based on revenue only. Mm-hmm. They love to sell tags and they love to sell non-resident stuff because it's costing a guy 600 bucks just to hunt a deer. Wow. It's costing a guy over 1000 to hunt an elk. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yep. So hmm. they sell out every year to the Washington people, the, you know, people from all over. I, I mean, I, I don't blame people sure. for jumping into Idaho because it's all OTC. It is. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Northern Idaho. Northern, Northern Idaho, Idaho is. is. Northern, yeah. So, yeah. you know, obviously, Troy, like the, you know, we understand the Grizzlies protected, you know, uh, mountain lion season. Is there a wolf season? <laughs> yeah. I'll make this as short as I can, but describe it. <laughs> Idaho screwed up 25 years ago and introduced the wolves. Yep. And then once the resource of elk got completely decimated and Idaho started losing money from non-residents, then they then the government went to all-out war on the wolves after they screwed up. Us hunters told them it was going to happen. Sure. So now, guys, if I'm if you're a resident in Idaho, you get unlimited wolf tags basically kill them all type mentality now because it hurt the state revenue yeah no way yeah no different than like pigs in the south it's like cool kill as many pigs as you want like you're still never going to efficiently control that i don't understand why these states don't get together like why don't why didn't colorado call you guys yeah i mean colorado is just just released just released just did it yeah why they call you say hey how'd that how'd that work out guys i just did a podcast the other day about government intervention with wildlife sort of speak we got on that topic these the problem is is we have all of these people all of these government officials that live in these big cities romanticizing with wolves yeah and the truth is they never talk to us people that live with them and compete against them for food sources yeah and they don't give a shit about us um colorado would never talk to idaho because colorado is extremely liberal yep they're going to do their own thing and it's gonna it's gonna do like what happened here i have an elk herd just south of me that was numbered at about twenty thousand in the unit and when they introduced the wolves back in the 80s uh that twenty thousand was decimated to under 1500 within 10 years holy jeez! <sighs> you can look up the selway herd in idaho and look at the old history on it. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Hoyt Archery. Oh, dude, it's almost fall. You and I are both going to be in a tree stand with brand new Hoyt bows. We're going to be shooting the RX-7 carbon bow this year. I know Hoyt's also got the Venoms out, both equally smooth shooting, quiet bows. Heck yeah, man. We got a convert on our hands this year. We got a lifelong crossbow guy with a vertical bow in his hands for maybe the first time ever, a good friend of mine. And uh, we've got them all decked out with uh, the inline accessories uh, from the QAD integrated ultra rest uh, to the quiver. And also he's got the SL sidebar mount with a couple of stabilizers from Hoyt as well. So that's going to be a sick shooting bow. Yeah. And Hoyt's been cool enough that anyone listening to this can save 20% on any of the soft good apparels online using the code Hunter, H-U-N-T-R, no E. Uh, and if you want to look at the latest lineup of Hoyt bows, check out your local Hoyt dealer. Got serious? Get Hoyt. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that at that point, when you talk about the political aspect of this, it's not just the hunters and the recreationalists complaining. Now you've got the agricultural side and the livestock side that's complaining. I mean, that's a lot of political pressure, especially in that state. Exactly, and it's, it's helped. Yeah. It, I mean, I hate to say it, but it took those entities to get attacked by wolves, and then, then we start seeing some changes being made. Well, and you're right. You're not going to see that in Colorado or Oregon, where it's liberal-backed states. Like they're they're not going to have that that stones to be able to move the the needle. I, I assume you see yeah. they're hunting them just like nuisance. There's I assume there's a trapping season as well. Oh yeah, we got guys trapping the hell out of them. Oh. Trapping, hunting. Uh, again, the country out here is so tough to get into in the winters. Yep. Yeah. That if you're not that if you're not set up right, you're actually asking yourself to probably get put your life in danger if you don't know what you're doing. Sure. I was gonna say, like, I mean, try to imagine running a trap line in that type of well, terrain. I mean, yeah, but where they're having an impact on cattle. I mean, I gotta believe, like, if I'm fairly sufficient at running a snare line, I should be able to clean up pretty good on a cow, on a on a cattle ranch. Yeah, and the guys that are really good at good at it, they know where to set up. They set up where the best food source for the wolves are, and you know, as long as the wolves are. The thing is, is moose live real high. They'll stay in the deep snow. Elk will stay in pretty deep snow. The wolves are always where the moose, the elk, and the whitetails are. And then if they get into the cattle, it's a little easier to get to them. Yeah. yeah. And I would assume it's like this time of year when they're getting into them. Yeah, year-round, but wolves do really well in the snow when they can run animals hard, yep. chase them until they run out of gas, and then they just pick away at who they want to eat. That's so wild. I mean, it, it, and again, it's so, I, I know that the wolf, the wolf whitetail dynamic is um, as crazy as it seems because clearly here we're seeing that mistakes were made is expanding, right? When we hear about this dynamic, especially in the upper Midwest now, like this wolf whitetail dynamic. It's like more is, and more people are thinking that's a good idea. <laughs> and it's, I don't understand it. Like, I, you know, cl and again, clearly it's because we're not experiencing those wolf populations and what that actually is doing, you know, in a real world scenario. Well, what is the motivation? I mean, who, who, who is like the thought leader on like, he, we should reintroduce wolves here and here's why. Probably the people that wear the like howling shirts all the time. Okay. So that's who, <laughs> what, what's the why? Why, why reintroduce wolves? anybody you want my opinion yes we have we have an agenda that's way bigger than us as hunters we have an agenda out there in the world that would really like to force all of us people that that appreciate our freedoms our freedom of choice to eat an elk over a store-bought piece of meat um we have people out there in this world in huge pharma huge medication and huge food systems that want us to have to eat what they produce Mm -hmm. Okay, here's, well, I'll take it one step further. You guys have CWD out there? Uh, a little bit, not terrible. Um, but that is a, you know, that's a whole other monster that they can jump on board with. Okay, so you've heard of it, obviously. I mean, is that, oh, when, yeah. when you, when oh, you, yeah, we deal with it a little bit. When yep. you say what you said, I think what I thought. You think I think, yeah, as we talk about like, mm -hmm. You know, the, the CWD thing, and there's so much unrest about it down here. I'm like, that that would be the thing that <laughs> yeah. could uh, could do it. I think from a biological side, the story that you often hear from these, like, conservation biology people that, frankly, are infiltrating our state agencies more and more is that they want to yep. restore these landscapes to the natural ecosystem, which in many cases had things like wolves. Dinosaurs. 
Yeah, I wish uh, had things like <laughs> wolves on it. The reality is, is the landscape is a hell of a lot different than it looked like when those those apex predators were running on these these landscapes. So, it, it's in theory, it's conservation biology minded people infiltrating state government positions that have power that don't know shit about actual wildlife management. On, an, on a legitimate practice level. And, and what is the end goal? Is there just a model in their mind or that's been taught to say, hey, this is how a tiered system should look. And once those animals just exist out there, they're satisfied. Yeah, yeah it's, it, I mean, think about the things. There have been plenty of things in nature where, you know, let's say invasive <clears throat> X comes from China and is put into play. We then reintroduce invasive Y to control invasive X. And now you've got that one in there to... And it's, it's this domino effect, right? No different than what Troy's saying in terms of what Big Pharma wants us to do here and there. It's it's just a constant pivotal game that things are always changing and evolving. For some reason, these, these con- I call them conservation biologists. I'm sure I'm offending people with that, but my background was in wildlife and fisheries, so I didn't like those people. But they're, they're living in theory and living in past ecosystems that our current landscape cannot we can't evolve backwards too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we got to remember, guys, humans are the apex predator. That's it. Absolutely. We need to be running the show. We need to be taking care of our natural resources. We need to be using them. We need to be replenishing them. We do not need to get pushed into a corner where we are forced to not have a choice. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a dangerous game. We, we talk about this a lot. So, you know, Troy, my background was in wildlife and fisheries. That's what I went to school for. Did some forestry as well. Um, and, and even in my master's program, you know, what once was what we call very much hook and bullet, right? The guys who and girls who hunted and fished and who had grown up in that community were being replaced by people who were, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say anti-hunting, but they were non-hunters, more of like the Flips. tropics and, Classic. you know, yeah, the, <laughs> I want to work in a zoo type of person, right? And it's like, that's not us. That's not what this landscape is. But they find themselves in positions in many state agencies running the show. That's where it yeah, comes down to. Go ahead. Sorry, guys. No, you're good. I was just going to say my background's in kinesiology and biology. Yep. And I ran into a lot of what you're talking about in that biology realm. A lot. Yeah. A lot of it. It's scary because, uh, and it's, it's not saying that those people don't know certain things or aren't, aren't good at certain things. It's the fact that, you know, if you've never hunted before and you're now put in charge of one of the primary game species in a state that is generating a ton of revenue, but also many people in that state depend on and appreciate that natural resource and you can't relate to them, you're going to fail. There's no, there's no doubt about it in my mind. You will not succeed in that position. Uh, you will either mess up the resource or the people will eat you alive. Those are the only two options. Yeah, and you know what's super fascinating to me, guys, with whitetails is that we just talked about that for probably 15, 20 minutes. I'm still able to find a survivor buck that gets to five or six years old or seven. Yeah. Insane to think of that. Right. I mean, it blows my mind. I have, I have so much respect for a mountain whitetail. Don't get me wrong. I love all whitetails, but when I have lived and seen what these bucks survive through, like I talk about respecting the animal that we hunt. I'll tell you what, they have taught me more respect over the years than anything about them. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, Troy, when we look at the mountain whitetail that you're chasing, <clears throat> obviously very low densities, and these deer are covering great distances. When you describe that terrain of being just like thick, nasty, mountainous type stuff, I just, it, it, it's hard for me to to understand how you're keeping tabs on these things, like how, how you're putting yourself in a position with a bow uh, to get in front of these deer, I guess. Yeah, it's all, you know, I base it all on biology, all on the science of how a whitetail, what makes him tick. Because Idaho is a non-bait, non-feed state, I taught myself, learned from the whitetails. I shouldn't say I taught myself. The whitetail deer taught me from a young age that in big country, their central communication hub were those big community scrapes. And once I started keying in on those and learning how to get to those and get out without just blowing all the deer out, um, I started having some success. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more to it than just that, guys. Year-round scouting, tons of hours of looking. I say it all the time in my at my boot camps to guys that come to my boot camp. Just finding the caliber of whitetail I'm looking for is 75% of the battle. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. That Just makes kind of one. sense. What, what is the process for finding those community scrapes? I mean, if that's the thing that's providing the most amount of information, how do you find them? Well, multiple factors, a lot of years of learning what elevations and and terrain features drive deer and, and how doe family groups live and where they live in conjunction with where hermit type older bucks live alone and how the wind really steers the scent in the mountains so that older mature bucks can monitor does from a long ways away. Mm. They can safely monitor. Um, I would say if I'm uh, pretty keen on certain things, I'm excellent with thermals and prevailing winds and mixing and how big bucks use lateral type travel routes to cover the most doe family groups yep. they can in a day. And what ends up happening, guys, is where if you were to draw circles on a big chunk of ground that you go into in the mountains to hunt, where the doe family groups mostly reside and where your big mature breeder bucks tend to live higher elevations above them, if you draw those circles and where they overlap, a lot of times that's where you find your community scrapes in the terrain. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you think that, mm -hmm. do you think that same kind of obviously on smaller scale, but do you think that same kind of setup applies when you talk about, like, say like the Appalachian mountains of the East, like Jared and I were just kind of talking about it pre podcast there. I'm almost embarrassed. At it. Like, Hey, you've been to North, the, the big woods of Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's like literally hundreds of thousands of acres. You know? Yeah. But I look at that and say, you know, like where I'm at in Eastern Kentucky, I've got, you know, pretty vast wilderness <laughs> areas that are untouched. Uh, I've got very low deer densities, and in, and in a lot of cases, I'm left scratching my head thinking like, man, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the hell these deer are doing. Yeah. Yeah, it does apply. As a matter of fact, guys, even out in Ohio, when I got to hunt one particular piece that was hill country down there, mm -hmm. little south, mm -hmm. that 85 acres laid out like a mini or a micro mountain that I would hunt out here. Wow. And the way the bucks were using the prevailing winds and the thermals to bed, my son and I broke that place down quick because it was 85 acres. Every buck that every buck that we bumped, I think we pushed five up out of their beds 
uh, on that total piece and where the Doe family groups were hanging out, it was like a mini version of what we see out here based on the wind and the thermals. Yeah. So it all made sense. It all made sense to us. Uh, so yes, I believe it plays out anywhere where you have some elevation gain, elevation drop, thermal drop, thermal gain, and then prevailing winds that run over ridges. Absolutely. Hmm. Do you see, you know, it, it take that back then into your territory with all of the predator aspect that these deer have, do you see them move differently? Like do some of those deer move during the day more when the predators are less active or anything? The whitetails out here, though, are we talking deer or are we talking old mature bucks? Uh, let's, let's talk old mature bucks. Let's stay on that. Topic. The, old, the, the older mature bucks, even out here, tend to hold pretty darn tight during the day. Okay. Unless you're within 100 yards of their bedding. Okay. Maybe 150. Mm -hmm. the, the younger deer, all the doe family groups, absolutely, when that heavy predation seems to chill during the day, they're, they're always up milling around a little bit. Yes. Yep. Which, once you get to the rut, that, that does help yeah. for daylight movement. Yeah. But 90% 90, 90 of the bucks I kill, guys, I'm killing outside of the rut because I'm targeting a specific deer. Outside of the rut, and I've frankly, I've always, so mo most of my experience is in ag country, and it's it's fairly easy, right? Once you've spent some time there, you're like, okay, you know, bed, bed to food, bed to food. The food is typically like a big grain food source or an oak flat or something like that. What is the general or like looking at it on a macro scale, what is the movement pattern of, let's stick with mature bucks outside of the rut in Idaho? Where, where are they going when they get up out of their beds? Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you guys are okay, I'll say in the Northwest, That's all fine. three of these fine. states, they're, they're all the same habitat. Um, I've killed bucks on huckleberry patches. <clears throat> I've killed bucks on water sources early. I've killed bucks on red stem cyanosis patches. I've killed bucks always with all three of those food sources early. I always have a big mock scrape that I throw right in their face at them on purpose yep. because it's in their DNA. If multiple deer show up in their, their favorite territory to hide out in, it is in their DNA. It triggers them to come and investigate it. Mm -hmm. So if I can, if I can get in and get out and them not know that I came in and got out and built a scrape, I'm usually in the game with a big buck early season or late. Is that possible? You think you can go in and what they won't smell that you were there? I, I do it. I, I use the wind. I use favorable weather conditions. I mean, that's how I kill most of my big deer is I get in and out on them. Usually they're no further than 200 yards from me and I'm very meticulous like a doctor when I go in and build my scrapes to kill a big one because mm -hmm. I found him. I found him first. I located yeah, him. There's your big and, challenge. And then, and then, I then I slip in every intrusion that I make in on a big deer to kill him or get set up on him or just get him started on a mock scrape. I treat it exactly like I'm trying to kill him that day. Yep. So I'm I'm going in with a favorable wind for me, mm -hmm. usually some weather that helps dissipate my odor. And of course I'm going in super clean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, late latex gloves, you know, latex gloves on. Oh. Uh, if somebody saw me out in the woods, they'd probably think I was a freaking weirdo. <laughs> You're burying bodies out there back with there. Latex gloves and 
you know, I'm out there Has building these scrapes. I, I try to get them built under 10 minutes. I know that where I place this scent, I, I treat it just like a trapper. Yep. I grew up, I grew up next to a trapper in my younger years. And he and I used to talk scent all the time, even when I was in high school. Yeah. So I treat whitetail scrapes like trapping. Mm-hmm. Slide in, make the perfect build, meaning as perfect as I can visually, the odor is right, the visual is correct. And then I'm playing off of a wind that I know is going to turn and I'm going to get out. And then when that wind switches two or three days later, I know right where it's predominantly going to blow at him yep. because I have a really good idea where he's betting, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does. Yep. And when I say wind, guys, when I say wind, I mean thermal yep. com- combinations too. Yeah. Okay. So I play the game that big white tail bucks play on everything else. I play that game at them with, mm. with that wind and that scent. Are you using scent control like waist down while you're making those scrapes, like in boots, pants, anything like that, any scent control at all, or just yeah, I, just the I wind? Use a, I, guys, I use a. Here's what I do. My clothes never come inside ever during the season or when I'm scouting. They're always hung out under my covered porch in the air. Yep. All my clothes, whether it's scouting clothes, hunting clothes, I don't care if it's 30 degrees below zero, they're still hanging outside. So all my clothes are always aired out with ozone, with natural ozone. Mm-hmm. I only wash. We're gonna we're gonna get in depth here. I only wash my clothes, and I have for thirty years in only in baking soda only. Okay. And then they go outside. My wife, for me, does not use perfume at all during hunting season, or even when I'm on a big deer scouting. <laughs> Damn. No perfume, uh, guys. No. What perfume a lady, in the house. huh? Yeah. No, my wife's awesome, and she she'll attest to this. She literally, that's been something that we decided when we got married that I told her, I said, hon, you're not going to understand this, but wow. once you get to really know me after we're married, you're going to see that my whitetail hunting just isn't hunting. Jeez, I'm still so, just fighting for wall space. <laughs> I love that. So, so guys, our house is really clean. We purposely, on purpose, always have firewood in our basement. Smoke will never hurt you. Yep. Wood smell will never hurt you. Super clean clothes, let natural ozone, let the natural ozone clean all your clothes always. And then I spray down with a product I've used for over 30 years, Vanishing Hunter, Buck Fever Synthetics. And the reason I like it, it's the only product I've ever found that I could spray on cat shit and it'll take the odor away. So I get as, guys, I get as clean as I can, but you still can't beat a big buck's nose sure. if you're blowing right at him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're not hunting I'm wrong not, winds and thermals. Yeah. Right. So, so when I go in to build a scrape, I make sure it's that one odd day that the wind is very irregular in a direction, or I already know he's descended down a mountain to eat somewhere else, and I'll slide in on him and do it. I do a lot of building in the dark because oh. my bucks, dis, my whitetail bucks descend in elevation in the evenings, and they ascend in the morning. <laughs> Interesting. So there's a lot of times, guys, I'm building stuff at 10 to midnight. Well, no wonder you got to have your head on a swivel for predators. You're out there in the middle of the night building scrapes. I I literally, I joked about it on the podcast the other day. I am the the headlamp master. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have unbelievable headlamps. I've lived in the mountains my whole life in the dark on purpose. A lot of it was work driven because that's when I could scout or prep was after dark. Yeah. Now, obviously, I don't want the listeners to get this wrong. 
obviously the daylight's by far the best. Yeah. But but if a buck exits his bedding and I have him on camera moving down a thousand feet in elevation at night, it just makes sense for me to slide in there when he's way down low at night. Oh, absolutely. I build, I build, I leave, I backdoor his ass, I leave. He comes back in the morning and holy crap, cow, there's a yeah, all what of a was sudden here? there's five new deer. There's five new deer in his uh in his wheelhouse. Yep. Hmm. Mm. What um so Troy obviously doing that and especially looking at that from a night standpoint and don't go away like any secret sauce but like how are you how are you locating and finding these places in the dark like what what are you using how far are you going in to these spots okay <laughs> again probably jumped ahead of myself all of these places have been predetermined with my eyes or a map beforehand gotcha so you're you know where well, you're going I know where I'm going I've seen it at least once yep. And then I then I double back and do my builds. You know, I'll I'll build a lot of stuff uh, right before a big rainstorm. And and what I use rain doesn't doesn't ruin it, mm -hmm. but it does help me a little bit with scent. Sure, I've had real I've had really good luck with that out here. Uh, we have so much ozone in the air out here with all our storms that the earth cleans itself up pretty good out in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, we have so much moisture. Yeah. All, all that to say, guys, I just try to do everything I can in my favor to give me maybe a little more of advantage. I'm not saying me, my scent blowing right at a big buck, it's a mistake. It is. Mm -hmm. But I usually know where he's coming from. I usually know where I need to set up on him. A lot of times I find his community scrapes that he's still addressing even in the spring and summer uh, because of his bedding zone where he wants to be. A lot of times I'm just overmarking something that's existing and I jump in the game with more deer on him. So every situation, guys, every different buck is a different situation. And I try to treat every situation individually on how I got to attack that deer. And then I run my cameras on video on purpose so that I can get a ton of behavior intel on the actual buck I'm after. Mm-hmm. Talk to, talk to us about builds, Troy. I assume you're talking about building uh, mock scrapes is what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. always. Can you walk walk us through yep. one of those? Yeah. Uh, you know, 30 years of doing it, 35, 40. I have 35 years actually building mocks now. 40 years of hunting scrapes. Uh, first couple years, I didn't know what I was doing. But once I started figuring scrapes out, that's where I'd sit on the ground as a kid. Sit right next to him. I killed a... I killed a buck when I was a teenager at like five yards off of an awesome community scrape that I'd found shed hunting in the spring. The first time I ever said it in November, I killed that buck in like within 15 minutes. So it was probably pure happenstance and luck that I got there on the right day at the right time. But guess what that did for me as a kid? I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Hooked. Scrapes are it. You're hooked. That's where I'm going to be is sitting. unbelievable. Yeah. Right. So what I, guys, what I, what I've evolved into as a mock scrape guy is every build that I make mimics what the particular deer in that drainage or that pocket or that state or that habitat prefer based on what I scout and find first. Okay. I give them everything that they're used to and that they like with species of branch the way the local deer are building a uh, community scrape, how big it is, 
the visual part of it. I try to really mimic what I see the deer showing me through the scouting ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And then I'll mimic that in those areas. Mm. And, and what would the factors be? So you mentioned spe- species of limb. That's a big one. The, right. hi- the height probably doesn't change that much, right? It's all, always going to be fairly eye level. Yeah, you know, the bucks out here and the bucks I've hunted, the bucks I hunted in Ohio the other day, they were they were all about, I'm 5'10". Mm-hmm. Most of the licking branches were around my face yep. or yep. at my chest. Yep. Uh, so, again, pay attention to your damn deer and let them teach you. But but as far as the licking branches, all of my licking branches hang vertically down. Mm-hmm. I twist them and tear them up so they look like they've been there for decades. Yep. I get rid of any type of leaf or foliage off of them. Because yep. you want them to look like they've been there forever. Okay. And, and then the dirt, I really work the dirt up yep. and make it very visual. And anybody that's been in the scrape game long enough knows you guys can do it. I can do it right now. I did it in Ohio. I tested it in Ohio. You can literally just build a scrape without any scent in it at all. Yep. And yep. if it looks right yep. and your human scent is not in it, the deer will come and inspect that fresh dirt and that licking branch as long as it looks right and the dirt smells right. If you put your human odor in it, you might screw yourself on an old buck. You think so? Like even, uh, talk about urine. Talk about urine. So if somebody were to say, hey, I pee in my scrapes or whatever, you'd say, no, no, no. Okay. Well, I wasn't, Okay. Or you're Mine, saying you're saying, saying urine is scent, not guys, human I'm scent. I'm talking about hand scent. Okay, hand okay. Scent, sweat sweating. Hand scent. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Urine's yeah. fine. <laughs> okay, so if we jump to urine, if you look at urine from a biological perspective, urine is urine pretty much. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I have tested <laughs> for decades urine on purpose. Just try, you know, testing it on deer that I wasn't afraid. I wanted to see how they behaved. Sure. I've never had an issue with it. Never had an issue. Now, do I run a synthetic mix that I think is way more productive and that I can cast up in the, you know, I, I cast my initial scent 30 feet in the, or 20 feet in the air just to get the scent out oh, like wow. a trapper would yep. so that, because the deer, when they're a quarter mile away or half a mile away or a mile away, even they're still coming to that tree guys. But if you allow your scent or if you place your scent in more favorable wind patterns up higher, you will cast it to a larger group of deer. If you only put it down low where the scrape is, think about how the wind works at that chest level versus 20 feet up in a tree. Yeah. Think about how the thermals work. Think about how all of that works. How are you casting it up in that tree? When I initially build, it goes high. I did it in Ohio. I had bucks on all my scrapes in Ohio in January instantly within a day. Mm -hmm. Is that just with a better spray bottle, Troy, or how are you getting it up? Yeah. Pretty simple. I just use good spray bottles so I can cast it up in the air, guys, on the initial builds. Um, and, of course, like when I killed my big buck this year, when I was addressing his scrape that I have him daylighting in back in October all the way through, I was casting it up high because I wanted to make sure that scent got to him if he was bedded a half a mile from me mm-hmm. because it was at the tail end of the rut. Hmm. And I still know where he likes to hang out, but he might have been a ways from me. Yeah, that's interesting because you hear, you know, and, and I probably have even been caught being critical of it is like, you know, you used to hang the Tinks 99 or Tink 69 scent bomb up and put yeah. you know, buck piss all over it. And you're like, Hi. what buck is going to realize that somebody pissed in a branch up, you know, above his head type of thing? Yeah. Like, I guess, you know, whether the overthinking or whatever it is on that side. 
that's that's humans overthinking it. The the truth is, if you're casting that up high to use favorable wind currents, yep. all that deer needs to do is get to that scrape and visually see it and smell the same scent on that licking branch. Yep. And in that dirt. So that's something I've done for years. I do it with bears when I bear hunt on their scent. Uh, again, trapping. Trapping 101. Get that scent out. Sure. And, and keep your human, human scent, scent contained the best you can. And, and then, of course, guys, it's got it's visually needs to look right to an old buck. Yeah. That scrape needs to look like it's authentic to his woods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Half-ass built scrapes with human scent in them are a joke, in my yeah. opinion. You you educate the old bucks. Well, I still after hearing your description of a of a build, I don't think we're half-assing it at all. If anything, we're no. I. So ours is are very similar. Like we we take it serious when we're building scrapes. Um, we build a lot, and uh, truthfully, most times if I'm going out again, this is ag country and stuff. So Ohio is the experience I'm talking about. So if I'm loading up the machine and I'm going to go out and I'm going to do any work on the farm whatsoever, I mean most most places I can access with a UTV. I mean I'm loading everything from you know, minerals to glide to extra seed to my seed bags to cameras to I have, you know, my to my rake for scrapes and stuff. I mean, literally anything I could possibly need. I want to make sure I'm only doing one trip and I'm being efficient and uh, purposeful with the trip. So when I go in to put a mock scrape in the the rake is is critical. I want to I want to tear the crap out of it. So I'm opening this thing up, you know, is not unreasonably big, but as big as I can. The licking branch to me is and I think to everybody, it's kind of the consensus is the most important thing. Like visually, it just has to look right. It's got to hold up and it's got to be in a location where it's, for me, I want it to be obnoxious. I want it to be like when they come out in a, in a food plot or something, that's the, that's like the only thing they see. They can't not see that thing draping out over the edge of this, this deal. Yep. So, so typically I'll pick the tree, I'll, I'll rake it up like that you know, you have to be really careful because you only get one shot with a licking branch. If you have to bend it down at all or break it, I got to be really careful not to break it. I'm not yep. using gloves. Um, and it's, it's, we could talk about that, I guess, but I don't when I'm trapping either. I just kind cause we're in farm country. So they're, I think they're more used to just, you know, farmers, you know, human scent. It's yep. not, they're not wilderness yep. deer by any means. So I'm not using gloves, but, but I'll, I'll break it off. And I'll also rake the crap out of it. So usually I have like a little hand rake and I'll just, I'll tear it up as much as I can hanging right here. And then I'll pee in them just for fun. I know it, I don't think it really matters. I was. And then last thing is we use, is it, is it Tingley's or is it uh Smokies? Smokies. Smokies around here. There's smoke. Smokies is a brand for, of uh, it's preorbital and we'll use that. And I've had really good luck with that. Mm-hmm. So that's was, our process. I was going to ask, Troy, when you talk about the species of your licking branch, because I would agree, I think that's probably the most critical to that, thing I, I would say ours, ours are usually oak trees. Yeah. Is what, what are, you, yeah. are, are you using, are you locating that species of tree to make your <laughs> scrape, or are you going and taking a limb from the species that you want and then positioning in the location you want on any tree, basically? I do both. Okay. Based on where I can kill, where based on where I know, where I feel like I have the best advantage to kill. Okay. So if I need to harvest the right licking branch and place that deer where I need to place him so I can kill him, then that's, it's getting harvested and moved. Interesting. If I get, if I get fortunate and the species is right where I need it to be and I can <laughs> yeah. make it work for a kill tree, then exactly. Then yeah. I go with it. Yeah. And I wasn't saying that you guys aren't building them that way. I just spent my entire, entire last 25 years 
trying to help people with mocks and oh, scrapes and hunting scrapes. I think they're critical, man. The, the big, the biggest mistake I see with scrape hunting period is people being lazy and sloppy. Yeah. And, and sure, younger deer and does, and, but those old, old deer, and especially those top-end bucks that have been hunted over scrapes, mm -hmm. they're pretty particular about oh, yeah. not knowing that a human was in it. Yeah. We've seen it. You know, you talk about having your camera on video mode. I know when I've run that, too, or even some pictures, like, oftentimes, like, you know, you'll get a picture of a two- or three-year-old working a scrape, and in the background, there's the deer you want to work that scrape, and that some bitch never comes up and touches it. He's just scent-checking right. it, and he, he there's no reason. He's like, there's no reason for me to be over there. I don't need to be. And so I, right. I've seen that far too often, whether it's on a mock or, you know, you find an actual scrape in the woods that, you know, a lot of times those deer are just, they're just scent-checking it, and he's not coming to work that, that scrape, you know, and eventually you will get them on there, but... More often than not, you see them just cruising and scent checking a lot. Yeah, and I even get that out here where they just walk. They'll walk through it and put their head down, yep. or they'll walk beyond it 15, 20 yards. As long as they're doing that for me in the daylight where I can kill them, then yeah, it's working. You're good. Hmm. What, yeah. do you, what do you think? And, and you said, sorry, I got to, uh, Jared said something that I need, that I want to touch on. He Go. said location. Yep. Scrapes from my experience are a complete waste of time on a mature buck. If your location isn't right on him, he's got to, he's got to really like that location and feel comfortable in the daylight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, more basically you're not necessarily going to just pull him to the scrape. You need to make sure that scrapes relevant to where he wants to frequent. And, and again, that's why I usually have to get within, usually within a couple hundred yards in the mountains, 200 yeah. yards out here is, is like 50 yards for a, <laughs> right. a deer that lives in a woodlot. Yeah. So if I can get a build in on a big buck to where I put that scent in his face and I'm inside of his wheelhouse, his safety zone, and he doesn't know I'm a human, he will come and check it always. Were you going to ask a question? Because I want to follow up on that right there. Go ahead. I was going to ask about ropes and vines. Okay. After, so before we get to, so when you talk about that, that kind of his safety area there, Troy, how are you pinpointing these bucks from a betting side? Is it, is it off season scouting you find in sheds? Is it just knowledge of terrain and, and cover? What, what is giving you the clue to say, all right, I'm in the right spot at this point. I need to, this is where we're in his zone. Okay. There's a couple good, the great question again, a couple factors. My whitetails tend to shed right after the first of the year. Okay. I get I get to hunt them out here till Christmas. Oh wow. So so I have killed, I think, if I look around in here, I've got about fifty whitetails down here, and I think I've killed a dozen from their shed antler find. And this is why. I'm finding their sheds, guys, before they migrate, before the big snows come and cover them up. And they do cover them up, and I might not sure. find them until April. Yeah. But but what they're giving away to me, guys, if I can tell it's been under the snow the, the entire month of January and February or even half of January and February, mm -hmm. is that I might have just found where he was hiding out from all the pressure. There you go. So. So, guys, sometimes, based on the timing of their shedding and on the oldest bucks, that shed antler gives me his zone where mm. he really hides out 
at, in late archery. Yep. And then, of course, guys, the scouting, the trail cameras that I'm running, the direction that I'm getting bucks coming to and fro. Uh, of course, if I'm going to kill a buck in August on August 30th, I better I better figure out where he's bedding August 30th you versus be on December on. 25th. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so there's a lot to it, but the key is locating them. However, you have to. Mm-hmm. You got to get within. You got to get in their wheelhouse where they feel safe. Each month of the year, and they do move around. Each month of the season, they move all over based on predators and food sources and the rut coming up, and then the rut full swing, then the rut leaving. They have their hideouts, and there's multiple ones, especially in the mountains, because they get bumped by predators all the time. That's the biggest obstacle, is getting right in tight with them before something moves them from a condition point of view, a predator point of view, or another hunter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, go ahead. You can ask your stats. Well, on the scrape thing, I was just, uh, to, to finish flushing that out, what do you think about ropes and scrapes? You see those, like, you know, got, a lot of guys will lean on those, and we haven't personally, right? You don't use those? Mm-mm. No, I'm using almost all natural branches, and in fact, what I didn't say is okay. I, I twist the crap out of them. I want, I don't care, you know. Yeah. That's what I do. So, but I know some guys are, like, ride or die on the ropes and vines and stuff. Or do you have a opinion? Uh, personal, for me, it's all natural. I'm not. I'm not doing anything as a public land hunter to have a rope hanging out in the woods. Yeah, that makes sense. That that tells everybody in the world that there's a dude hunting here. Mm-hmm. Um, why? For me, here's the question I ask. Why would I switch up what I'm doing when I'm allowing my bucks to have everything they naturally already have and want? Yep. Yeah. Am I saying ropes wouldn't work in some places? N- not at all. Pro- yeah, might sure. work great. Uh, I stay all natural. And then I use synthetic scents only because any protein-based scent in a bottle breaks down with bacteria. Sure. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I would say, you know, alongside the ropes, you mentioned vines. I have seen a lot of people have success with, like, in our area, grape vines and stuff, which would be natural. And I have seen, I mean, I've come across them even on my property on the mountain where, you know, that grapevine breaks loose and it's swinging and underneath it is a scrape because it's just, you know, it's a visual it's a big I think looking bridge, to what basically. Troy was saying earlier about what the deer in a certain area or region prefer, like I just don't see that at our farm. We have grapevines and stuff, but it's interesting that you you mentioned that because as we're talking, I'm like, man, what species? Um, for me on the mountain, it's it's American beech. I see a lot of scrapes in American beech trees in in my area. I have oaks, you know, and I have maple, but for whatever reason, mm. I see American beech being used a lot um, from a scrape standpoint. Mm. You know, Kansas, I see a lot of, you know, uh, cedar trees having scrapes underneath them yep, and stuff. sure. Yeah, and you guys, I, I talk to people all over the country almost every day about scrapes or at least every week. And I hear a lot of beach yeah. in the east. Yeah. And, and I do. I hear that a lot, guys. It's interesting. Again, it's, it's, it's simple. Let the deer show you what they prefer. That's it. Uh, especially an older buck. Yeah. If you get him on a natural scrape and you see what he likes. You know, I was talking to Andre his his deer out in Iowa love apple trees. Yeah. They like to build scrapes under apple trees. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's really not rocket science. It's it's pay attention, be a woodsman, pay attention to what the deer are teaching you. Well, you you mentioned that earlier on like the the browse <laughs> and and Forbes side and and to me, you know, take the ag, ag sector out of it and you know, put yourself into even that, you know, late fall, early winter time frame. Um and I couldn't agree more. The observation around, you know, 
people saying, well, you know, what are deer eating? You know, there's plenty of years where there's been a ton of acorns. It's been dried, hasn't been wet, so they haven't really rotted. And in mid-December, they're still plowing acorns. There's been other years where all I see them doing is hitting blackberry and red black raspberry, and that's, you know, they're just on that green briar. And it's just, it's observing either the deer themselves doing it or as you walk through, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to see where, you, where deer browse is happening you know, and observe yep. what those plants look like in that area. Um, in fact, especially now you talked about earlier, like, Hey, do you see where these deer are bedding? Like when I get into those areas where it's greenbrier and stuff like that, I mean, it's mowed. The tops of those things are mowed out and then it's like, Oh, here's a bed. Here's a bed. Here's a bed. Here's a bed. It's because those deer are just plowing those food sources at this point in the year. Yep. Yep. Not right. Yeah, when science. I was in, o- when I was in Ohio last or a little over a week ago, that big deer I wanted to kill that it finally surfaced. He was, when I got to watch him in the daylight for about an hour, he, I just couldn't coax him across to me, but he was on a different property. But what he was doing is all the deer around me were eating the leftover cut corn on mm-hmm. the ground. Mm-hmm. And they were they were eating some acorns too. Mm-hmm. But he had this little 15-foot <clears throat> patch of green. I couldn't tell from how far I was in the binoculars, but it was really green grass. Mm-hmm. And he was popping out of the edge of the timber on those last couple days, or the last day, the last day. I caught him popping out where he popped out, and he held really tight to that tiny little patch of green. Think somebody's putting and, down and a, a just, little little patch of wheat or something <laughs> down there? I, I'm gonna, guys. It was off the edge of a cut cornfield. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm not quite sure. You guys are out there more than I am, but he literally stood and ate that green. It looked like wheat, but yeah. the farmer the farmer had not planted any wheat. It was all cut corn that was just debris. It's probably just a cool well, season grass coming up. Could have been. I mean, he said, yeah, and, and that old that old buck preferred that over everything else. Plus, it kept him tight to his bed, hmm. his cover. That's wild. Well, he said it was a, a pressured piece of property. I mean, I, it's hard to say, but maybe somebody went in there just and broadcast at the edge of the corn. Just threw out like a, a little bit of and grow or rye or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. even rye grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it could have been, guys. I, I was too far away to, to, huh. to tell exactly what species it was. Yeah. It is wild. I mean, you know, you see that all the time when you have variations in different places, whether it's, you know, acorns or like the difference between them eating soybeans versus alfalfa. Like, it, it's just, you know, and some of it, I think, it really comes down to because it's all good food. It's just like a personal preference, just like it, you know, a human is. Yeah, that's what it, they're it's like. Yeah, that's it. You're right. They they have personal tastes too that they yeah. like better than others. I've watched. You know, I had a buck one year that in that was butted up against a mountain and and peas. Mm-hmm. And that deer, that old buck that I was after, would only eat the peas. He would not walk to the lentils, and he would not walk to the alfalfa. He loved the peas. So, Crazy. yeah, it was just his personal preference where he wanted to feed. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, those are the things where, you know, we talked about it with the scrapes and stuff, but it's like, man, as hunters, and, and especially as there's a group of us, a lot of these people listening are passionate, passionate hunters. Think about it year-round. It's what's in their brain. <laughs> and, listen, that leads to a lot of over-analysis and overthinking of what we're what we're doing and how we're trying to accomplish it here. Yeah, I I learned real quick in Ohio that a a set of binoculars out there is super important compared to back home. Yeah, huge. Uh, the observation for me at the, after the first day, I told my buddy, I said, "Hey, Steve, can I please have your binoculars the rest of the week?" 
you yeah. know, just stuff like that that I picked up on right away that I was like, I'm not going to get in a game because I was watching 30 deer an evening at my sits go by. Yeah. And, and, and half of them were, were in bow range, but it was mostly just does and immature bucks every yeah. day. Yeah. And I'm trying to find the one needle in the haystack that doesn't want to move in the daytime. And I was able to see a ways in yeah. a couple of the spots. I set up in the timber, but I could see behind me out on other edges. And once I got the binoculars in my hand, I was like, holy cow. But, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have packed my binoculars too. I just kind of thought I, I get I get caught up in how I hunt out here sometimes mm-hmm. to where binoculars are basically a waste of my time because of how big a forest I hunt in. So. Oh. Troy, I mean, obviously in that Pacific Northwest area, you know, very particular about the thermals and the wind. And Jared and I talk about this all the time back here and it's open and we're like, man, how many mature bucks are catching our wind and know that we're here and we never lay eyes on them. Like we never see them. They're just, they're, they're the ghost in the, in the woods or in the field around us. Do you think that happens a lot where you're at? Absolutely. I'm a fool if I say I'm not educating deer, even in my best efforts. Yeah. It's going to happen. The winds are going to swirl. You know, I've had times where my son and I will be in a stand and we're after a specific buck and that wind starts swirling. Guess what we do? Because we don't want to ruin our whole week. We get out and leave. Yeah. And yeah. come back and hunt him on a better day and he'll be around. But, you know, I just don't ever hope hunt. I don't ever hunt hoping I'm going to get lucky. I really try to adhere to discipline and, you know, I, I probably hunt way less days than you guys can imagine. Hmm. Uh, Just I waiting. scout, I scout a ton yep. and I go in and kill when they're killable. Yeah. Makes sense. And that, you know, I think I hunted seven days this season for that big deer total. Wow. We talk, we do you know, talk but about I, that But I knew when I could kill him. Yeah. That's, Sorry guys. That's a great lesson. You can, you can learn so much from scouting. It's, it's hard. I think when you have limited time to begin with, if guys are like, well, I only have the weekends or a few days here and there, um, to give up time, uh, hunting to, to scout. You're like, I have limited time. I, I got to be in a stand Yeah. until, yeah. you know, if you're fortunate to, or just force yourself to, to do that, to, to, to step back and just spend that time driving around or to go in a scouting area where you're like, I, I don't have cameras or something. You can learn so much, and it's a, it's really is that most recent information that nine times out of ten is what gets it done, and uh, so I, I find myself doing that more and more. It's just, well, that's where, just scouting. Yeah, and that's where the out of state hunts become tough. Is like if you schedule it, like Troy, when you were out here, like maybe it was good weather, maybe it could have been better, but like if you budget that time and you know your son's got to go back to school and stuff, yeah. it's like. Man, you know, some of those days, if it was more flexible, I probably wouldn't have hunted. I, you know, just things weren't right. Like I would have scouted more. Or I would have just sat on the sidelines and I would have waited to this better. We talk about that I mean, all dude, the time. I mean, dude, it comes with that you got to have options to be able to, to pull this off. But like I've gotten pretty aggressive with it in recent years. Like I used to, there was a time where like come, you know, mid September or October 1st, I wouldn't dare step, I wouldn't even look at the bedding area, you know, to where now. It's like if I have deer that I've got fairly well figured out, I I, I want to try to respect my distance on those areas. I, I already know how to hunt those. But there's always other spots where I'm like, I'm just going to go walk it out. I'll but you know, if I'm going to bump something out or you don't know what you don't know and you don't know it unless you yeah. go walk it. So, yeah. so that's what I do now. Like most of October, I'm walking wood blocks where I'm like, you know, killing time until I can go back and hunt the one spot that I do have or and maybe I'll find something along the way. Yep. 
Yeah, on my eight days out in Ohio, I think I was 65 hours of scouting and 25 of hunting. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. How and, big and, How and, big was and that? And to be fair, and to be fair, guys, eight days, that's because I had enough property to do that on. That's I what have I was going to ask. Yeah, okay. places to go do it on. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Which, uh, you know, obviously where you're at in the Pacific Northwest, that's what I like about even where I'm at in Kentucky. It's like I've got my properties, but I've got – thousands and thousands of acres of Daniel Boone National Forest that I could that are adjacent to my places that yep. you know I just go and walk if I bump something I bump something but I'm just I'm really scouting to see what's in there like is it a chance that that buck that I'm hunting on my place is also crossing into here and so uh-huh. I think that um you know we talked about this with the advent of kind of cell cameras Troy in the past is like it used to be without a doubt um I would scout 10 times more than I hunted because when I would go out to check a regular trail camera, I was out scouting too. I wasn't going to just go pop in and like, I was going to look at this or do that. And now with, with the way cell cameras are, it's like, man, I, you know, I don't spend nearly as much time in the woods as I used to because they're there. Like sure. there's a good, there's a good and a bad, you know, reaction from it. Yeah. And I, I use cell cameras where I can out here. I, I took eight cell cameras with me to Ohio so that I could maximize yep. yeah. myself in those woods. And I still walked a lot because I did have enough property to walk. So I did both guys. I was just trying to get squeeze every ounce of intel out of the spots I was in as quick as I could because I'm on limited days. Yeah. Uh, out west, I have so many acres that I could never scout it in a lifetime. Yep. So I do have a little bit of a benefit where I can be real careful on a buck that I'm in the long game with and know him and he becomes a target, but I can also be out prospecting and I prospect like crazy. I try to stay way ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. You know, I always try to have six to 10 legit up and comers in the mountains. And to explain how that works out here, draw a circle from where I live on a map, 500 miles in a circle and People say Troy has a honey hole. No, I don't. I do. I do about a 500 mile circle around my place wow. on multiple different national forests, uh, three different states, and in two years I'll be in Canada all the time. Even if I have to go with an outfitter or a hunter host in Alberta, which I can have more freedom to scout. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, guys, I always prospect and try to stay ahead scouting. Yeah, but I'm also being careful on a target buck where I need to be careful yeah. on him. How, since we bring it up, how many cameras would you say you're running on a given year? Oh, I'm sure I have over a hundred running. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, what would be the breakdown of cell cell cam versus regular cam? 10 cell cameras that I get lucky enough to get service on and 90 regular cameras that are prospecting. And, and, and again, to be fair to the listeners, molt, most of my setups guys have two to three cameras set up on them. If there's a, if there's a potential Mm. of a big target, because Mm. I'm trying to gather two different angles of video from way back. So I can pick out what wind he is using to come into my scrapes or my setups. I hang what's called old man's beard in my video cameras, Mm. just so I can always see what wind a buck's using. And I want to know what all the deer are using the thermal, the wind, so, guys, when I say that many, a lot of times it's at least two cameras at a spot. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I only have about 10 spots 
that I can think of. I only own 10 cell cameras because I really don't get the service, guys. How often do you check those? How often do you check your sets with your regular cameras? I've I've tried to kind of go by a one-month rule out here outside of season so mm-hmm. that I can let my scrapes or mock scrapes just work for me. Yep. And I leave the deer alone. Yep. Uh, and I get all that intel on the video. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. I love that. There's there's a lot of trapper in you. There's when you say <laughs> when know, you say right? about multiple cameras, in my head I'm like, if it's good enough for one trap, it's good, good enough, enough for two. For two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I learned that as a young kid living next to a hell of a trapper. Yeah. Uh, the things I would hear him say about trapping, I thought, well, shit, I could do that with whitetail deer and a trail camera once trail cameras came out. Yep. That's you fine. know, and and we were building scrapes and he and him are using the old synthetics way back in the eighties and nineties and deer just showing up in the daylight before we had trail cameras. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh do I absolutely like trail cameras hundred percent because I can't glass out here productively. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Do you, uh, how often do you, would you say that you find a deer that you're just surprised about? When you mean surprise, like yeah, a giant? Yeah, a giant or just like, you know. Well, he said you, he hasn't killed a deer that he didn't know since like the late well, 70s. That's, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, it seems like you've got a very, oh. you know, a target in mind. You're playing that long game. Like, you know, you're prospecting a lot out there. I mean, do you trip like during season on a, on a big mature buck? You're like, whoa, new target. Like I'm, I'm, I got to make, make an adjustment here. Yeah, um, gosh, this is going to sound really cocky, and it's not. No, I've got so much time spent and intel put out there that most of my bucks grow up on my scrapes, or they get killed by a predator or another hunter. Yeah. So, guys, I think 97 is the last time I killed a surprise buck. Wow. I did kill a buck four years ago that when he came in, I did not recognize him. And he was so big and beautiful, I shot him and killed him. And then when I went back through my shed pile and went back through some old pictures, I was a long ways from him, but I had had him a couple times, so he was not on my radar, wow. if that's fair. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, it, 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 yeah I, I, you know, because I just, you hear about how Dude, much that's ground almost, you're covering That's and almost stuff. a term of the past. Like, you yeah. know, the, the term surprise buck kind of has gone away as trail cameras became a thing. It's like, no, yes. there are no more surprise Yeah, bucks. I know who they we are. Know, we all know about all of them. Mm-hmm. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Muddy and Stealth Cam Trail Cameras. Cell cams, cell cams, cell cams. What an evolution the industry has seen. And we've experienced personally over the past five, ten, you know, whatever cameras were invented, right? It's like, man, it's totally changed the way that we inventory deer, pattern deer, and ultimately the decisions that we make when we're going out to hunt. They're a serious piece of the puzzle. And, and uh, you know, that information is invaluable for us. We trust the Muddy and Stealth Cams, you know, together to be able to, to collect any of that information. Yeah, I mean, as an admitted trail cam addict, you know, I've definitely been guilty of of under hunting places or relying too heavily on that information that's come in that said it's an invaluable tool to the overall management plan and strategy that i have for my own properties or even hunting public land it doesn't matter we have a finite amount of time 
in going out and hunting. So when you and I are after a particular class or quality of deer, usually a mature buck, we can't waste time hunting an area where that deer doesn't exist. And those cell cams provide that information that allow us to spend the time in the area with the highest chance to accomplish our goals. I say it all the time, man. I can't kill them if they're not there. That's it. So right now, any of our listeners can use uh, code HUNTER20 to get 20% off either muddy or stealth cameras. Uh, we're certainly going to be taking advantage of that, and we hope you guys do too. Yep, check out Stealth Cam and Muddy. Yeah, I you guys were you were asking me about pressure from humans. There, there's actually a lot out here because everybody in the world's an elk hunter now. Mm-hmm. Everybody and everybody's a bow up hunter. And then we, the Panhandle of Idaho is very narrow. It's not very far across, so we get out of state hunters, ton of them from Washington. And some from Montana that come in and buy that out of state tag. So our elk season's out here are just insane. Yeah, there is a there is a camp in the mountains on every big pullout. Multiple guys hunting. All the drainages are covered. Everywhere where I hunt big whitetails, if there's elk around, get moved around by the elk hunters going through the woods elk hunting. Yeah, wow. mm-hmm. that's crazy. so. I do see a lot of human pressure during, especially during elk season and elk season coincides with whitetail season in Idaho. Hmm. What about whitetail hunters though? I mean, are, are you actually button heads with guys that are, or, or just running into guys that are whitetail hunting? Oh yeah. There's a, there's a lot of Northwest whitetail hunters out here that bow hunt now. Uh, when I was a kid, no, a uh, lot of guys, lots like you mm-hmm. got I have to work really hard on public land to get away from people really hard. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just uh, you know the uh, the ever evolving information that's out there, and and you know maybe you know we always talk about it with Iowa and and even in Ohio to a point. It's like you know the reason we want to go hunt Iowa is because our state screwed it up, right? So we want to go to a state that actually has it plentiful and we have resources to go to. So I think you see that probably with other places as well. I mean, you know, I know we talk about Colorado all the time from an elk side, like man, it seems like every trailhead is just jam-packed anymore on that side. And so those guys now look and say, well, where should we go? Well, we can go north to, to Idaho and maybe get a non-resident tech. Cool, let's let's do that. So, you know, I think just that increasing pressure that you're seeing even from the surrounding states or the more difficulty it takes to draw makes that area of Idaho just even more attractive to people. Yeah, I talked about it earlier. Our, our fishing game just allows wide open hunting in Northern Idaho. So it, there's a lot of people that come from out of state, you know, everybody wants to kill an elk. Uh, and the, the, the truth is everybody is, is going to just cover as much ground as they can on all these logging roads out here. They're everywhere. Yeah. Our country's all timber country guys. So you can drive a side-by-side or a four wheeler for a hundred miles in the mountains is and that, buzz around. Is that legal on the federal lands? Hundred percent legal, yes. Wow. So that's what I guess I was asking earlier, Troy, is like when we talk about some of these spots that you're going to, like how far are you having to hike in or remote like what what's the what's the access like to get into these places? Um, what I usually do is park way back and then I'm usually a half a mile to up to two mile hike to get where I want to kill something. Okay. And I tend to go I like to go real high to start and work my way down because very few guys want to pack a 200 pound buck up a mountain. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, you, and, you... and it's not always that way. Sometimes like the buck I killed this year, I killed him on the top of the mountain. 
because nobody wanted to get up there. Right. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people weren't willing yeah. to do what I was willing to do to kill this deer and to hike in on him on the backside of a mountain all the way up. Yeah. You know, over a thousand vertical feet climb just to kill this deer. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, that that makes sense. I heard you mention earlier uh, about being on an e-bike. Is that increased popularity a lot out there? Yeah, it has. And I really like using the e-bike because it makes me a more efficient scouter. Yep. I can get in and out of the woods, be home with my family an extra hour or two a day. Yep. Uh, I like to use it up until the snow keeps me from using it. And then I'm on my feet because I just can't get through the snow. And that's what happened to me this year on that big deer I was after. I scouted him and hunted him one or two times off the e-bike, which was awesome. Yeah. But then the snow came and I hiked in to kill him. <laughs> then you had to hike in. Are you, do you, are you yeah. having a snowshoe in in a lot of these places because of snow depth? Um, I can usually, usually get a buck killed before the snow's so deep I got a snowshoe. But I do carry snowshoes in my truck. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Just such a different like mindset. Oh, so different. I mean, we just don't get to hunt places where I oh, we. I mean, we are more and more, but like places where all these different species come together. It's funny to think about you know Western Kansas. Get your bird hunters overlapping with mm-hmm. your hunters. Where you were in Western North Dakota, you saw moose, right? There were mules yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, I. So I killed the closest that I can relate. Troy would be, and it's probably not at all the same. But I killed a really nice deer, a mainframe seven by six. I don't know, five or six year old deer. Uh, like one one sixty class buck on like basically right on the Missouri River on the North Dakota side. I mean, I could throw a stone and hit Montana. So I was yeah, I was that I close. I list. I watched that podcast and I seen that buck you killed. He's awesome. I actually have a really good friend that lives right there. Yeah, who is it? Oh, he probably. You can tell me after. Yeah, name. that's fine. You tell me after if you <laughs> yeah. want. I was hunting with uh, Luke, <laughs> Luca Psycho is who I was with. He's like cool. uh. I don't know if truly if it's the right word for it or not. He's a native or whatever, but he's like, he's an Indian looking fella. He used to be in the white knuckle production. He used to film with with Todd. Yeah. Todd and those guys. So, yeah. So, and I know, I know he, who he is, but my friend that lives over there just kind of keeps it quiet. He invites me over every year. So when I was watching your episode on you killing that deer, you guys talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Those deer, I've hunted North Dakota a couple of times. I really like North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, Us too. Those deer really, I don't know how he was down on the river, but the deer I hunt in North Dakota, more out in the plains, they really use their eyes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We we see that a little bit. So we, that was, and even in the south, we hunt more muleys in the southwest part of the state, but that's, you know, it's badlands, right? And so we're using terrain to our advantage. I mean, we went out there blind, obviously being East Coast guys, and it's like, you know, you find a little shaded cove that that deer can can get under for the opening weekend. I mean, that's that's where they're at, out of the heat, out of the sun. That's that's a treat um, for us. Mule deer hunting is a treat for us because it's like, I mean, truth be told, it's it's a lot easier than whitetail hunting is is the reality. But it's also we get to use our eyes. Like yeah. it's like all you have to do is get up, and if you have good glass, like you know, there it's just is. a matter of getting to them at that yeah. point. Yeah. Well, that's what I was yeah. I was going to ask Troy. Like out there, obviously plethora of other game whitetail seems to be your thing like do you, are you moose hunting are you mule deer hunting you elk hunting out there at all you asked some great questions i love it uh, <laughs> i i usually kill an elk every year and just kind of keep it to myself yeah because elk give you away in this country big time oh in terms and of where you kill them yeah so elk i i keep pretty 
quiet about elk. And, and a lot of times, guys, I just shoot a cow in late season for the meat. Yeah, I but think I've that's awesome. Some, I've killed some really, I've killed some really nice bulls. Nothing giant, but really nice bulls. Mm -hmm. um, mule deer. You guys won't believe this, but I get some of the most magnificent mule deer on my cameras because I hunt high elevation. Oh, I believe it. That's why I asked. <laughs> Do you need us to come clean those out for you? <laughs> those May those rats. Make room. Yeah. I, I have this joke about muleys. They're, they're, they're amazing. I mean, yeah, they're a beautiful animal. I, when you hunt a one tag buck state though. Oh yeah. There you go. And, and you have a mule deer or deer whitetail tag. You can use that tag on. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Where I get my best muleys. It's you got to use your deer tag on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess North Dakota is the same way, huh? Yeah, one tag. So, yeah. So for me, guys, I love whitetail so much. Sure. I, just, I give the muleys a free pass. I do see them every now and then. I mean, I've got a drop time muley on my camera right now the last three years that's 190, 180, <laughs> and he's a mountain buck. But I, I've i only told you guys that. Now it's going to be known. So now I'm in trouble. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> can we make can we make a poke at the mule deer people and and be like, listen, the reason why you don't really hunt them is they're too easy and you want the challenge. Well, well, I don't want to. I don't. Wanna, you know what I'm going to do, guys? I'm going to go the other way and say the mountain mule deer is harder to catch in a tree stand than a whitetail. Oh, I bet. Oh yeah, yeah. Tree yeah. Stand. Now, if I were if I got a rifle out yep. and went and found that big buck out on a big blade open space. <laughs> I, you know, that's how most guys kill them. Out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have had big muleys walk by me though, a few times in my lifetime, like, like nice ones, one fifties, one sixties in the woods, which is really cool because our muleys tend to even go higher oh. during, wow. and, when, and I mean, elevation wise, they'll go up to six, 7,000 feet and sure. hang out until that out snow here. pushes them down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's where they go. And I'm usually in that 5,500, 6,000 foot elevation down to about 3,500. As soon as I get over into Montana and the base elevation is 5,000 feet, yep. then I'm hunting six and 7,000. So it's based on where your valley mm. floor is. Yeah. Hmm. On where I go to find the whiteies. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, it's all love to the yep. mule deer hunters. I mean, we we, oh, yeah. we, <laughs> we do love it. I mean, we have a ton of fun mule deer hunting. We haven't shot any giants or anything. It's yet, an but. addictive style. I mean, spot and stock is something we don't get to do with whitetail very often. So to be aggressive from sunup to sundown, like moving aggressive yeah. hunting is like, well, and, it's out of this world. It, and a, they just stand up and run 50 yards and lay back down and then just go and do it again. <laughs> it's, it's an extension of our season. So like, you know, our seasons our whitetail seasons, I should say, don't start out here till like uh, October 1st. Yeah, my so Kentucky I, one's the only early one. Right. And so yeah. mule deer hunting is a way for us to, you know, go out and just have fun kind of b before the season. You kind of break everything yep. in and, you know, the, the run and gun is fun. I, I have laughed pretty hard harder than i should have i guess in hindsight looking at like hunting mule deer in the dakotas is like with a rifle i'm like i because we're doing it with bows and, mm -hmm. we'll, and we'll bump them out sometimes and then they'll run whatever it is 100 yards and then they'll stop and then they'll look back at you and i'm like if i had a rifle i would just wait i would just wait for that to be over and then yeah <laughs> it would be the easiest, yeah, like 100%, the, the easiest thing you could possibly do like there's yeah they're, they act different than a whitetail. You know, my whitetails stay tight to cover, big country. Yep. The muleys come out in the open. The muleys will spook from you a little ways and turn around and look at you. So, oh, yeah, yeah, if you're if you're a rifle hunter on mule deer in the West, you're going to do pretty good <laughs> if you have some decent. That's a high-odds sport do some scouting. Right there. 
and, and you get out and do put some work in. You'll kill one every year. Yeah. Yeah, those whitetails. You bump one of them we, and they're running still. We do love it. So the one muley that I killed, so Jeremy and I went out a couple of years ago. I think 2019 we went out. Uh, yeah. And uh, no, it was 2020. It 20, was 2020. 2020. We were, we were, you know, practicing for, you know, 70, 80 yard shot. You know, we had to be on it for that. I mean, a lot yep. of them Western guys are like, hey, if, you know, uh, 80s, a Western 20 or whatever. Yeah, and we're coming from the East Coast shooting 30 and in. Like, so, yeah, so know. we're ready. We're, we're prepared and, you know, we're making all these stocks and stuff. And uh, I, I ended up killing mine at like, I don't know, seven yards, eight yeah. yards. <laughs> mine was basically <laughs> under my feet. Yours, like yours was too. Yeah, both of them were like within 10 yards. Yeah. Well, guys, us, not all Western guys are 80 years. We, us <laughs> guys that live up here in this panhandle in the big timber, it's as thick or thicker than anything I've seen anywhere. Yeah. Um, so for me, I didn't really grow up in a conventional Western hunting habitat. Yeah. I grew up in the forest land of the, of Northern Idaho and Western Montana and Eastern Washington to where I don't think I've ever killed a whitetail buck with a bow over 35 yards wow. and 90% of them are 22 and less. Yeah, and I've killed a lot at five and six and seven. We have that too in the Northeast. I'd say yep. our, our record's about the same. Well, and that's what I mean. That's yep. why we bow hunt. Like I, no, yeah. no dis, no discredit to somebody who can kill a whitetail at eighty yards. I mean, that's that's a talented shot. But I, I bow hunt because I want that up close and personal. Like, yeah, even, even the elk that I've shot. I mean, I shot uh, one at twenty five yards and one at like eight yards. The buck I shot in Illinois is the furthest buck I ever shot in my life is forty three yards this year. Yeah, that's a poke. Yeah, it was, yep. and I was, uh, yeah, yep. I wasn't real sure about it, but that that was the furthest shot I've ever taken. Um, I shot, a, I shot a turkey at forty yards with my bow. There you go. Yeah, how about that? That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, most of most of my bulls and my bucks, I don't think I've ever shot a bull elk over forty yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's an inner, you know, like, obviously a lot of setting related. Like if you're in hunting New Mexico or you know yeah. whatever, like yeah, you're gonna have long shots on that, but. It is interesting when, you know, and again, the, the tech, you know, the techniques and technology evolved in the bows. Like, I mean, yeah, we, our bows will shoot 80 yards. We can kill a deer at 80 yards if we want. Um, but it's, I, it is something different there. I say it because of the habitat here. Just yeah. doesn't really, let you. You really don't, you really don't ever. Yeah. Same. On an old mature buck that's hiding out in big cover, you just, you're going to have a, 15, 10 to 30 yard shot max just because yep. of what your habitat you're hunting in. Agree. That's how mine are. Yep. We should talk about yep. it really quickly because we're running similar equipment and I can see it on your hoodie there. You're running the Lone Wolf custom gears. I know you have for a long time. Are you are you running a gun in every set? Are you pre-trimming stuff out? Uh, what uh, what what does a normal set good, look like? Call. Well, in the big mountains, I have a lot of presets that I put in. And again, when you play the long game on a buck and let him grow up, like that buck I killed this year, I have four years of history with him. Wow. I have spots. I have <laughs> scrapes. I don't even want to use the word spots. I have scrapes that he's been conditioning on for four years. Jeez. Mm -hmm. So so what I run out here, guys, is kind of a hybrid system. Multiple preset custom gear setups. I really like my 2.0s for that. Okay. Yeah. And then I always have a running gun setup. <laughs> always if i have to move and then like when i came out to ohio it was all running gun. all running gun what are you running for yeah. the for the running gun what size stand? uh in ohio i had a 0.5 and a 0.75 to choose uh, from yeah. i have both i'm yeah. a, i'm a 0.5 man jeremy's more of a 0.75 mm -hmm. 
yeah, you know, and just a little bit of history. I've known Andre forever, and you know, we filmed for him. I filmed for him and stuff. My boy does too. But Andre's tree stands probably—I don't know when you guys were born, but I was hunting out of a cast DeQuisto tree stand back in the '90s, early '90s. That's probably before and, Jerry was born. <laughs> and and what it did for me, guys, is it took all the noise away from yeah. steel. Yeah. And when you're hunting crackhead whitetails like I hunt out here in the mountains, you cannot have steel stands cracking and popping on you in the cold. No. No. It, it completely ruined your whole day on a quiet day. So yeah. once I got into a, an Andre DeQuisto engineered stand back in the 90s, I never looked back. Because my stands made no noise. It was unbelievable back then yeah. for me. Yeah. And and then of course over the years, uh built a friendship with Andre, ended up coming to work for him. And I work for Custom Gear. Uh I think Andre's stands are as elite and as well built as any tree stand on the planet. They're in, they're incredible. Agreed. They just perform and he puts all the detail into those stands that everybody else copies. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, I think he he builds them because he builds what he thinks he needs to hunt, and Andre's a straight killer, right? So whatever he builds is going to be the best damn thing he could put together. Yeah, and I needed that to kill these mountain bucks back in the 90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I needed that piece of equipment so that I didn't have to freaking try to ever set in a steel stand again. Yeah, Because they're a joke out here. Guys, it's so freaking cold out here in the late season that anything steel, Done. if you even move your weight, oh, it yeah. creaks. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's just a joke to hunt out of a steel stand out here if you're trying to do what I try to do every year and kill, you know, a five-plus-year-old mountain buck. Yeah. yeah. I think we just, you know, Jared and I cover, I don't know, between four and six states a year, and, you know, it just – being mobile has been so critical for our success because most of these times when we're going, we got three days in Illinois, we got four days here, we got one day here. Like we're, we have to be mobile to be able to pivot as best as possible. And I mean, we've used the pile of stands in the past. And and the fact is, is it's, you know, we don't even look at the weight and stuff anymore. It's just, what's the quality of the construction build? Can we get this thing in and out? Does it, does it pack in well? Can we set it up fast? Can we set it up quietly? Can we tear it down quietly? And I mean, that's what it's come down to for us. Well, it's, it's taken a long time for the technology to get here, frankly. I mean, I think uh, Andre stands have always been leading the pack, so, so to speak. That's nice. But, uh, you know, there it, it, it wasn't until, you know, what did I buy my first, you know, the, the old Lone Wolf stand? Yep. I bought mine uh, six, seven years ago. Seven or eight, yeah. Six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I had been running... 30 40 50 of the of the you know the older big game stuff and you know and some of the even the old rivers edge mm-hmm. stuff and like all the old creaky stands you know that's just what what we had and there was like i was like there's no way and i was good at moving them i've always been a hang-on guy like my uncle raised me on that we never used to use harnesses or any of that i could hang a hang-on trees i could do it but you know, like I said, it wasn't until six, seven years ago we evolved to that lone wolf stand, and it was it was like so far ahead. I finally got the money together to do it, and I was like, "This is amazing," you know. And then and I did that for a few years, and and that was the best that was out there. And there's some other stands, the B stand, and you got Novix, Novix. which is the lone wolf. I mm-hmm. guess there's however that all happened, but and now 
within the past couple of years, they've, you know, the request has come back out with some of these, you know, uh, the custom gear stuff. And it's like, dude, holy shit. Like nothing even touches it. You know, the whole saddle industry yeah. has come out and tried to like essentially yeah. be, be another option for that. But like, dude, I'm sorry, but they're, it's just not a hang on tree stand. They're, they're not as good. They're not, you know, well, and at the end of the day, like we're not rich guys and we understand that this, this tree stand setup is going to be an investment, but it's, that's what it is. It's an investment into your hunting success. It's, it's crazy to think that when you look at how, how different that stand allows us to be from it, just a, a, a mobility side compared to what we've done in the past. I mean, it's, it's by far been a, a huge attribution for us to kill multiple look deer at, this look year. Look at Kansas this past year, dude. I mean, I, I, we all hunted our balls off. And I don't know what your situation was exactly, but I know myself personally, every single time, every morning and every evening, I was going way, way back in, yeah. you know, running and gunning with, yep. with that 0.5. And it was like, not a thing. Not it's just thing. like, that's just what we're doing. I'm going to go hunt in there tonight. Yep. There was a time where it's like, I, you couldn't fathom doing that. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. And, and with, with Andre's stuff, you have so many options. Like, I think I moved, <clears throat> I think I had two to three moves minimum every day trying to get ahead of deer in Ohio. Ty and I did. Yeah. We were two to three moves a day when we weren't actually trying to kill. Yeah. And because of the gear, because of how efficiently it's built, how quiet it is, how well it even attaches to a tree, it didn't freaking matter how crooked the tree was or the bark that we're not real familiar with. Yeah, It was unbelievable to get to use yeah. on the species that we had to hang in in Ohio compared to back here. And then back here, guys, you know, I try to play it smart. I keep my lightest weight stand for my mobile. And when I got to move, I got to move. Sure. But I like hanging those 1.0s and 2.0s for all day sits because sure. they're a little more comfortable yeah. and they're not even that heavy compared to what I grew up toting around. <laughs> no, man. Yeah. That's what we said. Like I, I, my first like mobile ability set was a, a 33 pound summit climbing stand. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. that thing was yeah. so well, dude, loud. Well, all the old climbers, that, that uh, was the run and gun. I'm going to take rug on there with my climber. I can't believe that I actually killed deer out of that thing because of how, I mean, coming up and down tree, whoosh, whoosh, you know, it's just like, that's just what we did. That was the only way you did it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one thing interesting about out West guys. Uh, when I say West North way up Northwest where I hunt climbers are real tough because you can't make the noise. Sure. The great thing about the great thing about the sticks and the hang on, I can get in a tree out here, a Doug fir tree or a Tamarack and not make any noise and slide in. Yeah. And if I'm careful, yeah. Take an extra minute, be real quiet, because a lot of times I'm trying to kill a five-plus-year-old buck that's bedded with an earshot of me. Yep. Mm -hmm. And being able to do that alone is a game-changer compared to the old days. Yeah. With mm -hmm. metal. Yeah. No, I think I agree, man. It's it's um, it's such a huge difference. Like, there obviously, when you talk about those presets, like, when we talk about our home farms and stuff, it's awesome to have a preset, get up in it. You know, it's you get out there, it's ready to go. Climb it. That's a great thing to do. But it was when we started to get mobile that, frankly, I think we started to stack mature deer. Um, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's just how it was. It's, it's funny. We talked okay. with... Go ahead, Troy. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'll go after you, Jared. That's funny. We, we So we talked to, you know, a lot of guys obviously are into saddle hunt, and I don't mean to poke fun at anybody, <laughs> but... Um, you know, when I ask them, I'm like, man, I'm trying to really understand the advantage of, of the saddle hunting and stuff. And, and a lot of times they'll say, wait, 
Well, yeah. So there's the packing aspect. So whether it's bulk or weight, of which the weight is irrelevant to me, uh, the bulk is something you know I'll, I'll entertain that as an advantage. You know, maybe it's you can put it in a backpack. There's not like a, you know, it's not catching off briars or something. Okay, I can see that. The other big thing that they'll say though, as far as like functionality, is I can hang it in trees that I couldn't hang a hang on. To which I say bullshit. There is absolutely no tree that you can hunt from in a saddle that I can't hunt from in a lone wolf custom gear. N- not not one. Yeah. You know, and I've, uh, you know, I test myself with that theory as I'm, I'm walking through the woods. I'm like, I just, I, I can't find, I've yet to find a situation where I couldn't get into the tree because, and granted, <laughs> there are trees that for anybody, it's either, it's too small. Yeah. Like literally if I'm in it, it'll, my body weight yeah. will snap off snap the top it. of it or it's too big. In which case the only option is like a ladder stand with yeah. eye bolts on either side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the big one that, that I just keep coming back to on the, and I know a lot of people kill deer out of saddles. It's just the way that I was raised was in a lock on tree behind me to break up my outline in that position like Mm -hmm. to think of it as the opposite of like facing the tree even using that in between you and the deer i also feel like there's plenty of time where i look like i'm this giant branch hanging off you know one side or the other there's a disadvantage from cover and i just i can't my mind can't ever wrap around that i don't think Mm -hmm. yeah what i like about the system too is you, you come out here where i hunt guys compared to where i was in ohio in Ohio, I had a couple killer sets, two sticks high. Oh yeah, because the the cover was cover there. was awesome. Yeah, it was the right spot. The wind was perfect. Boom, perfect. Loved it. Had multiple bucks walk by me. Just didn't want to kill those bucks. You get out where I'm at, and you're in all coniferous timber. Mm-hmm. The limbs don't even start till thirty or forty feet. Wow. Mm-hmm. So people misunderstand and take things here's the deal you got to play this scenario your playing field to the best advantage you can what i like about the gear that i'm running through andre the custom gear stuff is i can take four or five long sticks throw it on a 1.0 i'm carrying half the weight i used to when i was in my 20s and 30s and i can get up to height i can get above certain thermals and prevailing bad winds down on the ground plus i get to back cover and i play that game i'm always going to put myself at the best advantage to kill that given deer in that specific habitat situation jump out take the same gear to ohio yeah break those sticks up into two or three different sets Mm -hmm. and leave a couple i left a couple presets in ohio right off the bank right off the rip because I had bucks on existing scrapes hitting them instantly. And I thought, I'll double back to this and set in it if I need to, if my cell cam tells me to, or if if I glass it or whatever. Yep. I do that out west, guys, because I play the long game on deer with scrapes and community scrapes. I have some community scrapes with presets where the straps get checked once a year, they stay. Or I have to pull down some in the big forest service ground, but a lot of the timber company ground is different. But all that to say, that tree gets hunted every year because the deer herd uses that scrape. Right. And I've killed multiple 160 plus five, six, seven year olds out of it in a, you know, multiple big bucks over, say, a 10 year period, which to me is super cool being able to double back to those community hubs. 
and take the next great generational buck that comes through out of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So, Troy, when you're in your home state and and doing, how how high are you getting to to have that back cover and stuff? Uh, as soon as I get up above 3,500 feet elevation, I start getting into Douglas fir and tamarack. And if you Google those tree species, anything that's mature, you're about 30 feet to the to the limbs, 20 feet at the lowest. Wow, <laughs> nose so, bleeds. So, so you get up high, and what I've learned over the years, because I was forced to hunt high yeah. with back cover, I've evolved into a much better wind thermal hunter over the years and really learned it, mm-hmm. is that I started noticing that with steep terrain and thermals and wind mixing together of prevailings, I really started to notice that the wind that was blowing up at 30 feet and the direction it was moving is a lot of times a lot different at 10 feet high and mm. eight feet high and five feet high. Yeah. So I started really paying attention to that. You know, I've been floating thistle weed for 30 years yep. out of my stands. Uh, again, I've got literally thousands of windicators hanging off the trees. It's called old man's beard. You guys are probably familiar with oh, it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. When I sit in a tree stand, I study the wind non-stop the whole time every tree set i ever set in out west because i have those windicators so it just started making sense to me where i needed to be for height to give myself the best chance of killing an old hermit whitetail that has got has, has basically beat everybody else with his nose yeah makes a lot of sense yeah crazy man the hunter podcast is brought to you by muddy man jerry we probably have been using muddy products for at least 10 years now it's a long time dude. it's been a long time and i can remember when it was simply just safety harnesses and camera arms of all things and you know that's evolved to where you and i both have a bunch of muddy box blinds as well i would say a bunch but yeah they've come a long way and certainly the box blinds are, are huge shot that buck of your shoulder out of a muddy box blind a couple years ago the harness and, and all of the other safety accessories really are, are a major component of, of what muddy offers for me um, you know, we've had some injuries in the past, you know, some, some tree stand accidents. This, this is all back before we were using, uh, you know, frankly, harnesses, uh, the lineman's belt while we're hanging stuff, and the safe lines. I have those in every single one of, uh, you know, our fixed tree stands now. And uh, so we really have made safety a priority. Uh, that, that's a big deal for us. And, uh, you know, Muddy has everything we need for that. Yeah, and I think uh, the cool thing about Muddy is anyone listening to the Hunter podcast can save 20% using the code HUNTER20. That's H-U-N-T-R-2-0. Uh, anything that you can see on the Muddy Outdoors store online, use that code. Save yourself 20% for this hunting season. Go Muddy. I, I got a final request. Go ahead. Final if, request. if I can. Yeah, I, I think we're on your phone here, Troy. Is there any chance you could give us a, a very brief tour of some bucks you got right there? Uh, yeah. Uh, I can. Mommy, just turn the camera around, guys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Take it with you. Okay. I think you there's, I think I have, and I do want to say this before I show you. When I was 24, everything was robbed from me from my house. Whoa. Wow. So I have my bucks <laughs> that I've killed since I was 24 wow. in this house. Okay. And I think there's, there's three upstairs, and there's about... 30 in this room and six or seven in another room. So I can well, this show isn't, you this isn't whitetail cribs. We don't need to have every, every single one, but just, just show us a couple. Okay. Here's just hear me out. Here's some old school kills back before oh, I yeah. could afford head mounts. Oh, we like those. Nice. So this is back in the day. These are nineties, late eighties, nineties. Here's that buck. I killed this year, guys. Can you see him? Oh yeah. Jeez. Yeah. 
some serious mass there. Uh, here's a couple kills. There's Tyson's kill from Montana. And then here's some of my... Is it too dark? No, you're fine. It's all right. Oh, there you go. That's better. Here's some of the velvets. Oh, very cool. Can you guys see that or am yeah. I too close? No, it's I perfect. See my screen. Nope, it's perfect. Oh, that's a stud. Here's some of the big boys. Yeah, that's stud. Jeez. 60s, 70s, 60s, 60s. There's that buck that was kind of a trespasser that I thought was a trespasser, but I had to kill him because he's a big eight. <laughs> wow. The two oldest bucks I've ever killed aged at 11 and 9. Holy cow. And they went downhill, but they're still really nice. 138 to 145 buck. And then here's some of the big boys over here. Jeez. Fit high 50s, 80s, 86, 60s. Jeez. This is my number two in Idaho, 185 buck. Wow. Can you see him, guys? Or what a giant. Right? Oh, no, yeah. it looks perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah he's, he, he was Boone and Crockett measured. Just his inside spread was 24 on the Boone and Crockett score sheet. No so it kind of gives you... Uh, an idea how wide he is. Jeez. Wow. There's that real nice 170 class, 13 and a half inch wide buck I killed two oh, years ago. That's I mean, cool. those split Boy, browse. dude, that's hard for a buck to score that well with uh, tight spread, and I'm sure his beams weren't that long because of that, too. Can you guys see him? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Those beams are actually 25, and that left side's 86 and a half inches. Yep. Holy cow. Yep. Can you see that in there? Oh, yeah. Split on that G4. Yeah, big brows. Brows have over ten inches each on them. Gross, big gross buck wouldn't net anything. Yeah, we know? don't. Sorry. We don't care about nets. Yeah, and then there's a bunch in here from the old days. Man, yeah, a lot of a lot of split characteristics. Um, yeah, there, Troy. Like, I and, mean, I know a lot of people say, "Oh, it's that that muley hybrid type stuff in it," which I don't think is necessarily true. But like, it is interesting. You see the split split twos and things like that that seem to have the deep fork like a muley yeah and we you know if you look at my sheds that are hanging i i only keep my great big whitetail sheds you see a lot of splits yeah mm -hmm. got a pile of, mat of match sets in there too pardon me pile of match sets in there too that's pretty cool yeah just lots of years of really figuring bucks out I, like i said i think i have 11 or 12 in here guys that i have sheds to wow that's amazing and then and then upstairs, you guys would love it. I got my grandfather's 260 muley that he willed to me. Oh, boy. Holy cow. Yeah, that's a special and one. Then, and then I have a Canadian buck that upstairs that's 185. And then my dad's muley that before he passed, I kept. So three generations upstairs. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, uh, Troy, I'll say this briefly because I know that <clears throat> we you mentioned it earlier. Like. Um, did you... You said something about you're going to start hunting Canada in two years. Is there a catch to that? Yeah, I, I have my entire life. I've I've logged and built roads and construction. Then I've been a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I've done both my whole life. I have equipment, heavy equipment, but I'm done teaching in two years. I'm done. And as soon as I have the time, uh, I'm going to go to. I'm going to. My goal is to be in Canada every year. I just love Canada. I love Canadian whitetails. So Alberta or Saskatchewan or BC, at least one of those places every year. Sounds like a great plan. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. And how, I mean, what is it to, like, if you wanted to go hunt Alberta whitetails, how, how long of a drive is that for you? Oh, I'm, heck, I'm only seven hours from Calgary. Wow. 
And you said you have yeah. a place up on the border on, on the Idaho side. I have a place kind of my hideout, my top secret place that I have property that puts me, I'll just say it puts me in the heart of my favorite genetic pool of whitetails for a hundred miles. Wow. That's all public. Dang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And again, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not that rich guy either. I've worked my tail off to, sure. to be able to chase these public land bucks. Everything you see in here, minus the one Oklahoma bucks, everything in here is public. It's unbelievable, man. I mean, y- you know, and I, obviously a lot of East Coast and Midwest guys listening to this and watching this, like, you know, um, it, it, I think it would be hopefully listening to this. They realize like, this is not an easy task of what we're looking at it. We look behind you and it's like, man, this is like, it's unbelievable. Like this guy instinctively must have like some sort of honey hole that like all these, but, but clearly, you know, listening to you talk, like, you know, it's a hard, frankly, I'm sure you would admit like if they want to put the time and effort into it, anybody could probably go out and kill these on public land in Idaho. The honey hole is in your head. <laughs> uh, you know, I I think, uh, and I don't know if I understood that exactly right, so correct me if I'm wrong. Right, I think if you're going to do what I've been able to put together as a body of work in my lifetime, you better sacrifice a lot, mm-hmm. and you better be pretty. You better be very sharp about what you're when you're in the woods. You really got to be paying attention, and then you got to devote your whole life to it. Yeah. And you got to find a great partner in life that'll allow you to do it. And, you know, my wife lives my life for me because she knows how much I love it and she supports me. That's really hard to find, guys, because I don't walk out my back door and hunt some unbelievable manicured place, which to the men that get to do that and put themselves in that position, good for them. I chose to stay in the Northwest about 20 years ago versus chasing Iowa or chasing the Midwest. I could have moved. I could have went anywhere I wanted to hunt big whitetails. And I thought, you know, I want to stay here, do this in the mountains, continue to learn from this and basically lay down a body of work in my lifetime that it's going to take somebody a long time to catch me out here. You know, that's just kind of, and I, and no guys, doubt. I did it not because I was trying to be cool. It was because I love this country. I, I, I spent my whole time with my dad when he was alive, logging in the mountains with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we live out in the mountains. We don't live in a town. I have never lived in a town other than for college. Uh, I love the mountain way of life. I love the tough obstacles that it brings. I mean, I, I have a bulldozer in my, out in my driveway. The only way I get to my house is owning a bulldozer, uh, in the snow, Yeah, you know, but I welcome that. And when I'm out in these giant forests and mountains, guys chasing the, or getting after these big whitetails, my favorite part is probably outside of season when I'm getting to cover ground and scout. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I just feel so free, Yeah, free. And I probably should have been born 200 years ago. If you want the truth. Yep. Makes sense, man. Well, I mean, you know, obviously the terrain and everything that we talk about is is just makes it hard to, for a lot of us to fathom. But then you throw into the the predator aspect, the weather, the incremental weather and stuff. It's just like all of these things, to your point earlier, Troy, is like, you know, looking at those deer in the wall are amazing, impressive animals. But then you factor those in and it's like, 
frankly, I don't know how most of them survived. It, it, that's why I have such a respect for them. I'll go back to that. When I kill these old bucks, I've known them a long time. It's just like, old buddy, thank you for the blessing that you give to me, and I'm glad a mountain lion isn't eating you alive. Yeah. Or a wolf. Yeah. You know, I, I really care about a quick, excellent shot. Uh, I respect whitetails and I respect wild animals so much that I won't take that long shot. Even if I'm a good shot, I always have been, I practice out to 60 and 70, but I don't want like outside factors that I can't control. Screw it up. I, I just kills me to wound a deer. I hate it. Yep. And it's because, and, and I feel like it's because I've spent so much time witnessing what these animals out here do to survive. Mm-hmm. So when I do kill one, it means so much to me for it to be over in 10 seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's probably uh, a weird unspoken mutual respect from that deer back to you to be the one that takes it honestly. And, and the way, I mean, you know, these deer aren't stupid. Like they, you know, as scent free and as careful as we try to be, they know over time that, you know, Somebody like you, Troy, is, you know, in their wheelhouse and after them. And I think that ultimately, you know, getting the best of them is is a monumental occasion, uh, to say the least. I I can't tell you. I can't even explain to people how rewarding it is to kill one old mature buck that you get to know out here, let alone 30, 40 of them. It's just (laughs) there's nothing I've ever done in my life. I played college football. I did all that, those things. I, I've never done anything in my life, guys, to this day, for me personally, that is as rewarding. I'm not talking about my family and my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a different level. Um, but for me personally, I just can't find anything on earth more gratifying, rewarding. I love the work aspect of it. I love the work. I love getting to do the hard work, uh, wearing myself out. Again, I'm 54, and these mountains keep me, in my opinion, young. They keep me young, and they keep me moving, and I can't imagine not getting to hunt these deer. Yeah. I I think um, something that's really cool hearing you talk about that, Troy, and Jared and I have had this conversation with a lot of people on this, and, and even ourselves internally, is you know, we love deer hunting and everything about it. That's why, you know, 365 days a year, we're doing something related to it, right? Whether it's shed hunting or scouting or actually doing the hunting at the end of the day. And and especially as things have evolved in deer hunting, um, you know, we're all chasing something. Um, that's, that's why we hunt, you know, and for me, I'm kind of in that weird state. My kids are 12 and eight and I love hunting with them. I miss the days of going to deer camp with my dad and my grandfather and my cousins and having that camaraderie and, and having that freedom going up. So, uh, you know, I think it's always ever evolving, but there's no doubt in my mind hearing you talk is you found what you're chasing and you're doing what you love. Yeah. And it's brought a lot of happiness and great times with my sons, uh, my boys have learned through, I, I believe, what I do with these whitetails. They have learned from their father that life is about what you do, not what you say, and you got to go do the work. Mm-hmm. They've they've applied that mindset. You know, there's a reason why my son's a 
scholarship football player at the FCS D1 level. He's worked so hard. There's a reason why my other boy is a bass pro fisherman that's just for his age, really doing well. Um, they also have a mother that's a superstar. <laughs> she needs to hear that. My yeah. wife's actually the the hidden hero behind it all. Um, and we truly like cherish just the moments that we've all had together through through this world, through the sports world. Uh, and the boys know that their dad's not out running around. Yeah. My, my addiction is to hunt a whitetail deer. Yeah. And, and I think they appreciate that. Yeah, I would agree, man. Well, listen, we, we really appreciate you coming on here and, and uh, it's so cool. I mean, Jared said it at the beginning, but you know, part of this is like everybody hunts a little different. Everybody hunts for different reasons and different cultures. And like, we knew this one kind of coming up with you, Troy is like, man, this is, this is very out of our element. It's still the passion of chasing mature bucks, which is what we live for. But it's so different than what we're used to that, you know, when we ask a lot of these questions, it's out of pure curiosity wow. and interest. It's just like the, you know, a whitetail is a whitetail, you know, whether it's in Idaho or it's in Pennsylvania. I think the same is true with a whitetail hunter, mm-hmm. right? So we have a lot of the same core passions, even though a lot of how we approach it is, is different. You know, can we learn? We can learn from each other and apply it to different geographical areas. It's I, I think the passion is is about the same. Every yeah. everything that you're saying is, is resonating with us, and so we we feel that. Yeah, and guys, I, I'll go back to it though. Everywhere I've ever been, I've been. Oh, I forgot one of those deer in the back rooms, Iowa. Um, <laughs> everywhere I've ever been, hunting mature whitetails, guys. Whitetails, the old bucks are still smart, cagey old bucks. Mm. I see the similarities. It's actually crossed over, I think, more than people would believe me. Uh, I think what this country has taught me is to be exponentially the effort and the discipline and the detail I've had to do because I've been forced to do or I wouldn't be successful. Yeah. 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 Makes a lot of sense, man. Well, we do. We appreciate it. We absolutely would love to have you back here at some point and, and maybe even in the off season to kind of catch up on like what that scouting's looking like as you're kind of establishing these sets and stuff. I think we, we try again, like we're, we're coming here out of the hunting season and, and we're already looking into what's next, you know, where, when do we, when we're going to start seeing sheds popping up and you know, what's the next step of scouting for our, our off season type of thing. So um, Maybe we'll have a chance to get to, I don't know if you're going to be at any of the the DeQuestos events or any of the mobile hunter road shows or anything like that, but as we continue to build our relationship with those guys, maybe our paths will cross and we can hook up in person. Yeah, I definitely hope, guys, that I get to run into you in person. Again, I think after you guys, we chat today, you see why I kept after it in Ohio, because... Oh, I, I get it, man. I really wanted to come see you guys. No. My, my boy Ty was stoked. He was like, yeah, let's go talk to those guys. <laughs> Dad, you'll get one killed. Uh, I guess if the old man would have been a little better, we would have came and saw you in person, guys. <laughs> no, you're that's fine. That's totally Well, right. let's, let's make sure we plan that. I'm sure that's not the last time you and Ty are going to be hunting Ohio, <laughs> so we can make this thing happen for sure. Uh, but yeah, no, we, we, re- we really appreciate you guys. We watch we a watch ton of your episodes, <laughs> and – you know, guys, the truth is this whitetail world, when you get into guys that really want to do it at a high level, it's it's kind of a tight-knit family of guys and, and a couple of gals, too, that it's it's that mindset and that mentality to where you end up gravitating towards each other down the road. And with today's social communication, 
advances, it's pretty easy to like, like, like we're doing today. You're sitting here talking to a guy from North Idaho yeah. that's spent his whole life around whitetails, yeah. you know? amazing pretty awesome Indeed. we'll also have to thank elon for making sure you got good service there that uh that we're able to do this yeah, too. thank you elon yeah. the starlink yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the only way i can get wi-fi is mr musk is a great invention just throwing satellite. throwing satellites over the house so well Coltroy, listen man we appreciate it um you know go do your thing and and let's let's make sure that we stay in touch here uh and would love to have you in sometime stick around here for just a minute once we hang up here we'll uh we'll, we'll keep you on for just a second but and yep, yeah, it. do you guys mind if I just let people know where to get a hold of me fast? Absolutely, man. Real simple, guys. Uh, I try to do all my whitetail conversations and communication in the world through Instagram. It's MTN Mountain underscore man 33. Really easy to find. The Facebook world is cool, but I kind of keep that to family stuff. So if you want to get a hold of me, Mountain Man 33, Mountain Man underscore 33 on Instagram. And I always try to get back to people on questions. And they'll see a bunch of your content and Ty's content on, uh, the whitetail addiction YouTube page. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Ty and I, Ty and I both, I work for Andre and, and Ty and I both film for the addictions guys. So, yep. Awesome. Very good. Well, cool dude. Well, we appreciate it and thank you. Thanks guys. See you buddy. The Hunter podcast is brought to you by Sever. Well, one of the biggest things that we always talk about is what our arrow setups are. And this year we're shooting the Sever Broadheads. I think we're both shooting the new two-inch titanium broadhead. And so, you know, we're huge proponents of expandables. And I know we've had this argument back and forth with people, but we just... We're we, right and you're wrong. And that's, you just need to accept it. We just want to have a giant wound that pumps out blood. That's the bottom line. We build our arrow setups and shoot bows, you know, to maximize penetration. And we shoot broadheads that are going to give us the best blood trails, you know, the most hemorrhage possible. Uh, and so part of those setups is we're also shooting the Eastern arrows here coming up pretty soon. So we've, yep. we've shot the victory in the past mm -hmm. and you know, there's all kind of great arrow shafts on the market, but like we're looking for a whole system from broadhead to arrow components to the arrow shaft itself. And uh, you know, the more we look at some of these Eastern shafts and the components that go with them, that setup's going to be really deadly for us. Yeah. I'm actually using the Eastern traditional axis right now uh, in my traditional setups for both my recurve and my longbow. I've got a hundred grain brass insert on those and then obviously i'm using a fixed blade broadhead on on those specific shafts right on so but yeah our goal is always to be shooting the best broadhead that we think is going to be the most lethal for our setups we've done plenty of research we believe in the sever broadheads and we hope you would check them out at sever broadheads as well dude's a straight killer oh yeah man what? methodical killer a lot of years there a lot of uh a lot of killing. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, we talk about it with Rising and some of these guys, too, is like, that guy killed... You can see it in his eyes. There's a determination, just a... Uh, yeah, you're not stopping. Not egotistical, but a, a confidence that it's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill skill. him. Yeah, if yeah. you took that guy and you dropped him in basically any scenario, he's he's gonna get on a mature buck. Whether he gets a shot or not, I don't know. But he's gonna be on a mature buck, yep. if that deer exists. Yep. Um... Yeah, and it's just, uh, it, it is, I love his respect for the animal because it is so hard to fathom that those mature bucks are surviving everything that's up against them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we uh, we all feel that whether we, it's, you know, it's a hard, <laughs> forgive me, it's a hard feeling to describe. I mean, re respect is the word for it. I mean, just, uh, 
and a, a love and an appreciation for the species and how well they can survive. And especially in an environment like Troy's hunting, mm-hmm. you know, where they've got grizzlies and mountain lions and elk hunters and, you know, just the elements to begin with. We talked about winter kill there a little bit after, after the, we stopped recording there, but, uh, yeah, to finally to for one to live five, six, seven years old, and to finally be able to to have watched them on your you know your mock scrapes and stuff since they were two years old, crazy, and finally you know pull that off. It's like man, what what a what a journey! How could you have anything but respect just for for that entire situation? I mean, yeah. it's that's something you build a like he calls a body of work. Like it is that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah, it's wild, man, and that's that's some wild <laughs> terrain to be in, and and uh, difficult difficult hunting. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the amount of scouting and preparation to lead to like, what do you say? Seven days of hunting, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's hard to fathom. And, and especially when we're like, man, look at all the things up against these deer that we're hunting. They're always dying. It's like, it doesn't hold up flame to what those guys are going through out there. Yeah. Um, just well, different terrain and different, different. Yeah. Different. Ours is all human. Oh, it's I mean? human death. There are no, there's yeah. no natural Vehicles, predators. hunters. There's just a lot of us. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. So anyways, uh, awesome for Troy to join us. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening to 167 with Troy Pottinger talking about Western Whitetail. And we'll see you next week. Later. It's take me oh.